Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. Ben Wright was one of the most versatile voices in radio, but he didn't seem to have a long-running series lead to his credit. He did have the lead in Frontier Gentlemen for one episode, the audition episode, and it was easy for him to play the Englishman J.B. Kendall, since Ben Wright was London-born, but he was also quite the verbal chameleon when it came to accents. Well, after the part in Frontier Gentlemen went to John Daner, who gave the role of J.B. Kendall a kind of a double edge, the refined Englishman and the man ready with a gun, when the situation called for it. After that, Ben Wright had certainly subsidiary roles in a lot of things, including Have Gun, Will Travel. As Kendall, Ben Wright wasn't quite the commanding lead. He was refined, though. And here he is in... Remittance Man, it's the premiere episode of Frontier Gentlemen from January 29th, 1958. They have some rather strange customs in the West. There's a town in Montana Territory where it's against the law to carry a gun. The sheriff lives by this order, but other men can die because of it. Frontier Gentlemen. Herewith, an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual account. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. Now, starring Ben Wright, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. had taken 98 days from St. Louis. I'd come by riverboat, up the Missouri, the little stern wheeler climbing, churning, scuttling over 2,000 miles of sandbar and rapids, then into the lonely wastes of another swifter stream, the Yellowstone, until we finally docked at South Sunday in Montana Territory. My ticket had cost $300, which left me about 50 in my pocket and the slim hope that there'd be a letter at the express office with my remittance from England. Afternoon. <laughs> Just in off the boat. Right. Uh, I wonder if there's a letter for me. Uh, J.B. Kendall... Kendall. Hmm. Any trouble on the way up? I hear the Sioux been kicking up their heels. Sitting bulls making big medicine again. Don't sound good. Oh, we didn't see any. Kendall. English, ain't you? Yes. I figured by your talk. Don't see many of you in these parts. Nope. Nothing for you, mister. You're sure? Uh, It's rather important. Nope, nothing. Maybe tomorrow on the Overland, though. Say, you planning to stay a while? I think so. Better get in register, then. 
register? Over to Sheriff Clanton's office. There's a notice on the wall. Maybe missed your attention. All strangers to South Sunday will, within one hour of arrival, register at the office of the sheriff or be prosecuted. That's Clanton's orders. Surprised you missed the signs. They're all over. Well, thanks. That's all right. Wouldn't want to see you in trouble. This ain't the healthiest town in the territory. Not for strangers. Oh? Any particular reason? Uh, sheriff's office, six doors up, mister. Afternoon, Mr. Farley. This uh, here's Mr. Kendall, just off the boat. I was telling him about registering. That's a good idea. Jake Farley is one of the sheriff's deputies. Helps keep South Sunday law-abiding. It's a big job in these times. What's your yes, business, sir? Mr. Kendall? Oh, well, you, uh, you might call me a jack-of-all-trades. I might. I do a little writing for a London newspaper. You know, an Englishman's view of the Wild West, <laughs> that sort of thing. We don't take the strangers. Oh, really? Well, it's a shame. I've been looking forward to my visit. Yeah. Well, you've seen it. Now you know what it's like. Suppose you get yourself back on the boat and try up the line to Rosebud at Junction City, huh? I don't think so. Uh, now, if you'll pardon me, I'll register at your office. You carrying a gun? No. Get your hands over your head. Uh, Higher. Now, you just hold it. Uh, that's your bag? Yes. Take it up. Well, I don't suppose you'd like to give me a hand. Uh, no. No, I didn't think so. Uh, Farley, isn't it? That's right. Uh, tell me, Mr. Farley, how did your town get its name? How should I know? Civic pride, perhaps? Mister, I don't like the way you talk or what you say, so you shut your mouth. You start here. You just come in off the boat, Frank. Says he's a writer, a newspaper in, in London or something. He ain't caring nothing, I search. Uh, you're Sheriff Clanton? Yeah. Uh, J.B. Kendall. I understand I have to register. Yeah. You want to write about South Sunday? I might. How come? Well, as a matter of fact, the name intrigued me. You kidding? No, not at all. I write about the West, and you're in the heart of it. From what I understand, there might be trouble brewing with the Sioux and the Cheyenne. I'd like to be here if it blows up. What's the name of your paper? The London Times. You ever hear of a Duke? No. All kinds come to these parts, mister. I ain't exactly calling you a liar. Oh, well, that's quite all right. One can't be too careful in here. Uh, my paper. J.B. Kim. Mm-hmm. You say your subject? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it says, you see, Dake? Yes, it says. Anyone else get off a boat with you? Not that I know of. Well, you sound all right to me, Mr. Kendall. I just remember, I got a set of rules. You live by them while you're here, you'll get along. That seems fair enough. No man except them authorized by me carries a gun in South Sunday. That way we don't get a bunch of crazy, lick-it-up miners and the like shooting up the place. It, um, it seems the usual thing for a man to be armed in most places. Well, it ain't usual here. It's again the law. I see. You got yourself fixed up the hotel? Not yet. Now, you go over to the Empire, Mr. Kendall. Tell them Frank Clanton sent you. They'll take care of you. Oh, that's very good of you. Dake, take a look at his baggage. All right. You're going to search my luggage? That's yes. right, mister. No guns in South Sunday. Not worn or hidden. That's the law. 
I haven't got one. Glad to hear it. I like a peaceable man. Yes, sir. A fellow like you might think of settling down in South Sunday. It's a quiet little town in Montana Territory. It's an opportunity for a man. I'll keep it in mind, Mr. Clanton. Nothing in the bag, sir. Well, now, Mr. Candle, you enjoy your stay. Anything you want, you just ask me. And I'd appreciate it if you put my name in your paper, sir. And whatever you want to say is okay with me. My hotel room was a palace in comparison to the cabin on the riverboat. And after cleaning up, I went downstairs to the saloon bar in the hotel, ordered a drink before dinner. The place was practically empty, but I wasn't alone for long. Hi. You're the English fella, ain't you? Candle? Yes, that's right. I'm Lila. I work here. Frank Clanton said to be nice to you. I'm being nice. Want to buy me a drink? It's on Frank. Well, I'd be delighted to. Uh, but and, uh... Champagne, Harry. Yep. Frank says it's not ladylike to drink whiskey. Say, what'd you do to that man? I ain't never seen him like this. <laughs> he thinks I'm going to write about him for my paper. Are you? More than likely. You gonna write about me, too? If you want me to. I'm Dake Farley's girl. Dake doesn't like you. He got mad when Frank said to be nice to you. Um, does everybody in South Sunday do what Clanton tells them to do? Sure. Why? You drink. Ah, well, good luck. Ah. Look here, Lila. What about Clanton? You seem like a nice fella. Don't ask questions. Oh. Well, uh, what about you, then? Me? What do you care? Where are you from? I was born in Ohio, got married, and came out west. Mm -hmm. Five years back, my husband got killed in a gunfight. Oh. I don't know. I kind of drifted around and ended up here. One place is as good as the next. Is it? I guess. What about you? Your home's in England, huh? It was. You one of them lords or dukes or something? <laughs> oh, not exactly. Married? No. Must be interesting traveling around, seeing new things. It has its advantages. But I suppose you'd like to get back home. Oh, let's just say that one place is as good as the next. Oh. You can't go back, huh? Trouble? In a way. It's a... Oh, look, your friend's just come in. Who? Yeah, Mr. Farley. Listen, you be careful with him. Jake can get awful mean. <laughs> Doesn't he take orders from Clanton, too? I thought my person was sacrosanct. Don't talk smart like that to him. It riles him. He ain't an educated man. Oh, oh, Mr. Farley, good evening. Will you join us? No. No, I just come to tell you not to get no ideas about Lila. Well, now, what ideas do you think I'd have? I'm telling you. You're telling me what? Well, you keep your hands off my girl, you understand? My dear fellow, I haven't touched your girl. The thought never even entered my mind. We were just having a drink, Dake, like Clanton said. Now, you keep all. out of this. You know, I find your manner towards this young lady rather offensive. You're just asking for trouble, aren't you? No, not at all. Now, you think you can come in here with your fancy talk, your fancy ways, and make a fool out of me? Uh, you know, maybe Frank's a sucker, but not me. I don't like you, and I don't trust now, you. Mr. Farley, it couldn't be of less consequence what you think of me. He'll kill you. Just Shut like... up. <gasps> now, that I don't stand for. Shall we? Oh, I imagine it's broken. 
And now, if you don't mind, I'll relieve you of these. Really, a chap of your disposition has no right running around with even one gun, let alone two. You should have killed him. What on earth for? Listen, there are two more beside Jake and Plant, and they'll get you. You won't have a chance. I think you'd better clear out before Mr. Farley stops bleeding. He's not going to be in a very nice mood. Where are you going? Down to Mr. Clanton's office. I've got to have a little talk to him. In a moment, we return to Frontier Gentlemen. People who live in glass houses maintain a fine view of the world, but they do give up a great deal of privacy in the process. Folks who like their privacy but want to know what is happening in the world satisfy their needs in other ways. They make it a practice to keep their radios tuned to CBS Radio every day of the week. That way, they can enjoy their surroundings and still take advantage of our far-flung CBS News facilities. To keep an eye on the world, keep an ear on CBS Radio seven days a week. Now, Act Two of Frontier Gentlemen. go down there. Dake went out the back. He'll have told Clanton by now. They'll be waiting. Well, that's all right. What's the matter with you? You want to die? No, of course not. They're gunning. If you're gunning for them. Gunning for who? I'm not gunning for anybody. Then why are you going to see Frank? I told you I want to talk to him. Oh, Listen, you got to get out of town. Oh, my dear girl. Don't you know who they are? Should I? You don't know what you've done. You... Shh. Wait. This way. <laughs> took my hand and ran back up the street. We ducked down a narrow alleyway up a rickety flight of stairs, which was the back entrance of the Empire Hotel, and then along a musty corridor past my room and into hers. Okay. Okay. I think they're looking for you here. Uh, your friend Mr. Farley is going to be quite upset if they do. His name not Farley. Clanton isn't Clanton. They're the Shelton boys. Shelton? The New Mexico Shelton boys? There are four of them. Brothers. What are they doing in South Sunday? Hiding out from Billy the Kid. They killed one of Billy's men down south. Billy swore to get them all for it. That's why Frank went and anybody around here carry a gun. But how do you know all this? It was my husband they killed. Your husband with Billy? We were both crazy young. Harry joined up with Billy for excitement, I guess. One time he was gone out of town three months. I was lonesome and I met Jake. Harry came back. They had a fight over me. Jake out through and we ran away together. I see. And you thought I'd come after them and that Billy had sent me? They'll think it now, too. Hmm. Who made Frank Sheriff here? Nobody. There wasn't one when we came. He, he just took over. Funny thing is, I guess he's a pretty good sheriff. He quit the old ways, kind of liked the kid. Why have you told me all this, Lila? I don't know. He talked with me like I was a lady. Maybe I want to see you finish him. Well, it's not going to be very pleasant for you anymore. Pleasant? You've got a funny way of saying things. Is there anywhere that you could go, uh, friends? In South Sunday. Well, what about home? I mean, Ohio. Home? Know what it costs to get there? I've got no money. But if you could? If I could? 
I had nice folks. But I don't even know if they're alive or dead. I'd sure like to take a chance and find out. Well, Lila, we'll see what we can do. Where are you going now? To have that talk with Frank. Uh, do you know how to use a gun? Yes. You take this one. Lock yourself in after I've gone. You keep it. I've got a derringer. All right. Here. Uh, in case I have any trouble, it's $50. I don't want your money. Well, at least you'll be able to get out of town. Now, you take it. Watch yourself, will you? Jake's got a mean draw. I'll watch myself. The Shorten brothers and probably two of their chums were out looking for me now. I was pretty certain of that. I was looking for them, too. But the advantage was on their side. The town was strange to me. So I went to the one place where I was fairly sure I'd be safe from a surprise attack. You're a faint here. What are you... Uh, 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 uh. Careful. Keep your hands where they are. You're Kendall? I'm Kendall. Now listen, I... You may very slowly, carefully unbuckle your gun belt and let it drop to the floor. If you try to be foolish and brave, I shall be delighted to shoot you in the stomach. Oh, it's not me, Mr. Kendall. You see, just like you Which say... Which Shelton are you? Monroe. Very well, Mr. Shelton. I wish you to walk to that cell in the far corner. Go in and close the door behind you. You will then stand with your back to the door. You wouldn't kill me. Oh, yes, I would. Off you go. Close it, please. Good. These, I presume, are the keys to the cell? Yes, sir. Right. Now, turn around, please. Now... I'm going to gag you, and in order to do so, I must put my guns away and use two hands. If by any chance your friends come in and you make an outcry while I'm doing this, I shall teach you a trick I learned in India. It feels like this. Effective, you understand? Yeah, yeah. Right. Head close to the bars, please. By the way, how many are there looking for me? Two. Three. Three. Now we'll make ourselves comfortable and wait for your brothers. Coming. I remember what I told you, Mr. Shelton. Not a sound. Kendall! We know you're in there! Blast. Kendall! You hear me? Is there a back door? Mm-mm. Come out with your hands up, or we're coming in after you! All right, let's get that gag off. I can see I'm going to need oh, you. What? What are you going to do? I'll probably have to end up killing you. Uh, nothing personal, you understand. What do you say, Kendall? Why don't you come? 
open the door and throw your guns out. Well, I've got a much better idea. You open the door and throw your guns in. On ropes. You in there? Tell him. Yeah, uh, I'm in here, Frank. Kendall, you come on out. Maybe we can make a deal. You can keep your gun. I think it'd be safer if you came in without yours. We could rush you. You couldn't get all three of us. You have my permission. I don't know how your brother will feel about it. You want to tell him? Now, don't do anything crazy, Frank. He's got a gun at my head. He'll kill me. Frank! I hate to do this, but I'm afraid they don't believe you. No, no, no. Hey, Frank! You do what he says! All right, all right. Kendo, we open up the door. Throw down your gun. You give us your word you won't shoot? Not unless you do. Any more? No. We're coming in now. Well, pleasant family reunion. The brothers Shelton. Keep your hands where I can see them, won't you? Now, look. If Billy the Kid made a mistake about what happened down south. Uh, take did mean to shoot Lila's husband. Now, did you, Dave? I drew him, that's all. Yeah, that's the way it was. Lila knows it was a fair fight. I should tell you. Speaking of Lila, I hope she's well. She's all right. Now, we got no fight with the kid or you. Now, why don't we all go on down to the saloon and have a drink and talk it over? Me and my brother's been living a nice, quiet life up here. We won't make no trouble. Now, Dave! <laughs> <laughs> dishonorable and most unwise. <laughs> Any more hidden armaments? You you going to That depends. Mr. Shelton, have you got five hundred dollars? Yeah. I guess so. Hmm. Lila wants to go home, and that's about what it'll cost. You have the money here? It's in the safe. Uh, sure, uh, she could take the boat out when it leaves in the morning. Ain't that so, Dave? Get it? Yeah. Good. That settles the account. Now, all of you, you, you get into the cell. And incidentally, until this evening, I had no idea who you were, and I've certainly met, never met your friend Billy the Kid. I thought you'd like to know. Hey, what about Dave? He's got to have a doctor. He'll bleed to death. Yes, he probably will. Well, I'm going back to the hotel, and if Lila's all right, I'll send a doctor. If she's not, uh, well, we'll find an undertaker. Thank you, Mr. Kendall. Oh, that's nothing, Lila. Good luck. You ever come Ohio way, you look me up, you hear? I'll remember that. 
You're a gentleman. I'll never forget you. Goodbye, Mr. Kendall. about the trouble last night? Yes. Sure must have been something. According to the sheriff, a whole gang rode in, tried to shoot him up. He ran them off, though. So. Oh. Really? I wonder, has that letter arrived yet? Nope. Nope. Afraid not. Mail's already come in. Won't be any more than until next week. Oh. Well, when it does come, perhaps you'd be kind enough to forward it to me. Sure. What address? In care of the express office. Rosebud, Montana Territory. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars Ben Wright as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Jack Crucian, Michael Ann Barrett, Stacey Harris, Vic Perrin, and Barney Phillips. Music was composed and conducted by Gerald Goldsmith. Join us again next week for another report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Would it have worked as well with Ben Wright in the lead for the run of the series? He was less dramatic than John Daner, but effective in the audition episode of Frontier Gentlemen, and an interesting contrast to John Daner. That was Remittance Man from January 29, 1958. John Daner did pick up the rest of the series for its all-too-short year-long run, and then, of course, went on to play the role of Paladin in Have Gun, Will Travel on radio. Ben Wright remained one of the busiest and best voices in radio. And speaking of words and wordplay, acrobatics, in fact, that was the strong suit of Danny Kay, and he's next here on Skywave Audio Theater. Danny Kay, short for Daniel Kaminsky, starred in several popular films, White Christmas and uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty in particular. His trademark was his mastery of patter songs, which was the heart of the radio series that he did in 1945 and 46. Behind the scenes, Kay relied heavily on his wife, Sylvia Fine, and uh, there were some moments of difficulty between her and other members of the production team. There was some silly stuff in the series, to be sure, but Kay's linguistic acrobatics were impressive. And here he is in a broadcast from January 27, 1945. Pabst Blue Ribbon presents the Danny Kay Show. Yes, neighbors, this is the Danny Kay Show with Eve Arden, Lionel Stander, yours truly, Ken Niles, and the outstanding music of America's top band, Harry James and his music makers. 
entertainment, Past the Ribbon, 33 fine brews blended into one great beer, presents 33 fine talents blended into one great comedian, Danny Kaye. At the moment, we find our hero in his hotel room, splashing and singing in his bathtub. La donne mobile, la donne mobile, la vie high, et les pensiers, Just a moment, please. Pensiers! Now, who is it? Peekaboo! Oh, it's you, Lionel. Gosh, this water is cold. Well, if it's so cold, why don't you turn the hot water on? What, and kill the goldfish? <laughs> but, but Danny, why do you keep your goldfish in the bathtub? Because I don't fit in the fishbowl. <laughs> Oh, look at those goldfish, Lionel. Aren't they cute? What the matter with the dog? <laughs> yeah, they are cute. Yeah, and they're smart, too. Come on, you little devils. Whip your little tails around and wash the soap off Daddy. <laughs> Amazing! Oh, nothing at all, Lionel. Nothing at all. Now, come on, goalies. Do a trick for your Uncle Lionel. Well, I'll be done. They're blowing soap bubbles. <laughs> yes, well, I better hurry up and get dressed. And I see a brisk rub down, a brush of the teeth, and oh, darn it. Hey, Danny, what are you doing? I squeezed too much toothpaste out, and I'm having the darndest time pushing it back in the tube. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why they make them tubes one way. Hey, Danny, why you got all your suits and stuff laid out? Are you going someplace? Am I going someplace? <laughs> I'm going to Washington, didn't you know? I didn't even know you were elected. I wasn't elected, Lionel. I'm flying to Washington today to entertain for the March of Dimes. Yeah, all right. I'll bet you'll have fun there, gee. Uh. I can just see it. The nine of you out dining and dancing every night. Nine? What nine? Well, I read in the paper that there's eight girls for every man in Washington. <laughs> Boy, I wish I could go up with you. I'm sorry, Lionel. Sourly Lionel. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> maybe some other time, maybe. Yeah, but by then, the yards may be only six to one. So you're flying to Washington. Yep. What's yeah. the matter, Danny? Well, you know, I've never flown in a plane before. Well, if you've got to fly, it's the best way. <laughs> Say, Lionel, would you do me a favor and help me on with this, please? Oh, sure. Here, put your left arm in first. Okay. Now, this goes around my left leg here, and that one around my right leg. Now, how do I look? You look chick. Real chick. Hey, uh, could you help me out with my top coat now? Okay. Hey, wait a minute, Danny. What? Don't you think you should wear your parachute over your top coat? Oh, Danny, are you ready? Can I come in? Oh, sure, Evie. Oh, hello, Miss Darden. Hello. Well, Danny, I see you're all dressed for the plane. Yeah. How do I look? 
Well, don't look now, but your ripcord is showing. <laughs> Anyhow, why wear a parachute in a hotel? Why wear a pa... We're going down in the elevator, aren't we? <laughs> oh, Danny Kay, you're about the most jittery man I ever saw. Well, I can't help it, Edie. It runs in the family. What? Sure. My father always had a fear of high altitudes. He'd get a nosebleed every time he stood on a thick carpet. Gosh, was your father really like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was afraid of water, too. He wouldn't even get into the bathtub unless there was a lifeguard sitting in the soap dish. <laughs> Gee, you must have had a big soap dish in your house. No, Lionel, it was a small lifeguard. Say, Danny, when you get to Washington, I'll bet you'll brush elbows with some dignified dignitaries and potential potentates. You <laughs> <laughs> certainly will, Lionel. Gee, suppose you met an Isle or a Duke. What would you say to him? Oh, that's easy, Lionel. I'd just say, uh, your lordship. That's very good, Danny. And what would you say to his wife? Your ladyship. Mm-hmm. And how would you address an admiral? Your flagship. <laughs> Sure, and the Admiral's wife is your battleship. Oh, no. Oh, I was only kidding, Givy. I know how to act. You know, if I meet someone from the French Embassy, I bow from the waist and say, Je le quatre ans ce jour, de les étoiles en clou, je dois un plaisir, je le vais un plaisir. Non. That sounds good, but what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> well, who cares anyway? Hey, Danny. What would you say if you met the Chinese ambassador? Oh, the Ch 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 Chinese ambassador? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. If that means what it sounds like, I'm too young to listen. Oh, hello, Harry. Hello, Eve. Say, Danny, what's that big package you've got out in the hall, all wrapped up in blue paper and pink ribbons? Oh, that's a little gift I'm taking to somebody in Washington. Little gift? It's huge. What is it, Danny? Oh, it's that milking machine I bought last week. I, uh, I'm going to present it to the Secretary of Agriculture. Danny, the Secretary of Agriculture doesn't want a milking machine. Look, Edie, let's leave that up to him, shall we? Well, let me ask you one thing, Danny Kay. Have you ever seen a cow in Washington? No, and I've never seen one in Philadelphia. But I got milked in both places. I think that's a very brilliant and thoughtful gift, Danny. Of course, the secretary may think you're a little nuts, but it's still very thoughtful. Oh, thank you. A milking machine for the Secretary of Agriculture. It's too bad you haven't got an X-ray machine, so you can take it to the Secretary of the Interior. Oh. <laughs> well, that would be silly. But I think my gift is very appropriate. I even wrote a little verse to go with it. Would you like to hear it? No. 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 Let's try that again, shall we? <laughs> Would you like to hear it? No! That's fine. <laughs> I'll read it to you. <laughs> Dear Secretary of Ag, if the milk supply doth lag, attach this machine and your cows will come clean. Why should you be left holding the bag? <laughs> hey, that's fun, Danny. Uh, let me try to make up one. Go ahead. The sack of egg, what's here in this bag ain't no Scaparelli design, but any cow dressed in it will do her best in it, and she'll look simply bovine. 
Say, that's not bad, but uh, how about something like this? If your cow looks blue to you, won't say moo to you, and milking time makes her shudder, attach this machine, she'll be more than serene. And by Jove, she'll be utterly utter. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that lovely? A hep cow with silk milk, dream cream, and utter butter. <laughs> Look, Danny, you better get to the airport. You've got to pick up your tickets and everything. Okay, Edie. Lionel, you take my overcoat, the milking machine, and my bag. Huh? Okay, I got him. <laughs> What's that? Oh, I forgot to tell you. Keep the milking machine away from that cowhide bag. <laughs> While Danny Kaye is on his way to the airport, Harry James and his music makers celebrate their sixth anniversary by playing their famous record version of the King Porter Stump. Great, Harry. You know, I love that King Porter stuff. Say, uh, King Porter, isn't that the fellow who wrote Night and Day? No, Ken, that was Cole Porter. Oh, that's right. Ah, oh, Night and Day. 
It's so romantic. Yes, isn't it? And uh, who do you think of night and day, Ken? Well, it isn't really a who, Harry. It's a, it's a what. A what? What's a what? One of the pleasantest what's in the world. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Ah, I see you're talking of the beer you love. Oh, definitely, Harry. And why shouldn't I? Why, Pabst is as full of sparkling goodness as ripples in the moonlight. It's 33 brews as perfectly blended as the harmonies in a great love song. <laughs> 33 brews that beat as one. Yes, and I'm true blue to every brew. To Pabst golden color. To Pabst outstanding flavor. Shh. Everybody will know your secret. Well, I want them to know my secret. I want to share my love with the world. Pabst is grand. Pabst is perfect. Oh, Pabst. <laughs> Passengers for plane to Washington, gate number three, please. Passengers for plane to Washington, gate number three, please. He must be a new man. You can understand everything he says. <laughs> hey, Danny, that's your plane. You better get over to that ticket window and ask the girl for your reservation. Gee, look at how long that line is. Well, while you're waiting, Danny, I'll get your bags in the milking machine. See you in a couple of minutes. Okay. Uh... Pardon me, is this the line where you wait for your reservation for the Washington plane? Yes, it is. <laughs> Gee, I, uh, I hope I don't have to wait long. Say, uh, by the way, how long have you been waiting for your reservation? What day is it? Uh, Saturday, January 27th. Monday will be three years. <laughs> three years? Well, why didn't you try the train or the bus? Oh, I prefer going by plane. It's quicker. <laughs> oh, Mr. Jellison, here's your Esquire and a letter from your mother. Thank you, Postman. Postman, wait a minute. You mean you even get your mail here? Oh, yes. Oh, uh, Mr. Jellison. Yes, Postman. You'd better fill out a change of address card. You've moved up two places since Thursday. <laughs> hey, Danny, I got your suitcases in the machine all taken care of. Didn't you get your ticket yet? No, and the way it looks, Lionel, I may never get on that plane. Oh, yes, you will. Somebody by the name of Stuyvesant who had a reservation can't go. He just got called back suddenly to his office. How did you find that out? I was eavesdripping. <laughs> well, who is this Stuyvesant? Oh, a big banker. Now, come on through this gate, Danny. Let's get you in on that plane. Just a second. You can't come through this gate unless you got a reservation. Oh, but you don't understand. Mr. Stuyvesant... Oh, Mr. Stuyvesant, we've been waiting for you. Oh, well, I was trying to tell oh, you that... don't worry, don't worry. We had instructions to save your seat until you came. Right this way, Mr. Stuyvesant. But Coming, you... Mr. Stuyvesant? Huh? Right through this gate, Mr. Stuyvesant. But, Lionel, I don't think I should take Mr. Stuyvesant's seat. Oh, stop worrying. If the seat fits, wear it. <laughs> uh, which one of you gentlemen is Mr. Stuyvesant's? Mr. K is Mr. Stuyvesant. What? I said Mr. Stuyvesant's okay. Is uh, this Mr. Stuyvesant the banker? Than whom none other. <laughs> well, I'm from the Daily Herald, and we'd like to know if there's anything you'd care to say before you take off. Yes. What? Goodbye. <laughs> oh, but Mr. Stuyvesant, as one of our leading financial authorities, what is your opinion of the effect reconversion will have on the unearned increment of a soluble corporation that has no holding company? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh... <laughs> Mr. 
Iverson. Yes? Would you rather go by bus? <laughs> no, not at all. I'm uh, very glad you asked me that question, young lady. Very glad. That, uh, that very same question, which when uh, put to prominent banking authorities, uh, must not be confused with each other. We, uh... <laughs> we, uh... We feel... Uh, we feel... Uh, uh, we feel that the fluctuating currency, which, uh, by the way, has exemplified the monetary values thereof, is, uh, not at all. <laughs> however, uh, however, <laughs> however, um... <laughs> However, we feel that the man in the street does. And we must not question it. <laughs> well, uh, you're so right, Mr. Stuyvesant. <laughs> the man in the street will be glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, well, don't tell him just yet, because, uh, well, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, we're just in the process of. Uh. <laughs> of uh, what? Exactly. <laughs> and you may quote me. Oh, well, thank you, thank you, Mr. Stuyvesant. A pleasant trip, Mr. Stuyvesant. Is there a man by the name of Stuyvesant out there? Oh, sure, that's Mr. Stuyvesant getting his picture took. Say, when you see him, tell him I want him, I want to get his package. Yes, I'll do that, little thing. Say, uh, Mr. Stuyvesant. Oh, sorry, old chap, no more interviews. I must get on the plane. Uh, that's what you think. What do you mean? I mean I have a warrant for your arrest, me fine check raiser. Check razor? Sure, and the law has caught up with you, Mr. G. Wellington Stuyvesant, alias Barney the banker, alias Tuffy the Thug. Tuffy the Thug? <laughs> Officer, you've made a horrible mistake. Oh, no, sonny boy, you have. Now, will you come quietly or will I have to put the cuffs on you? The cuffs? <laughs> what is this? Tuffy the Thug cuffs, alias Stuyvesant? Look, I'm not Stuyvesant. I'm Danny Kay. Oh, Danny Kay, is it? My boy, you're getting in deeper and deeper. <laughs> but, officer, now just... Stuyvesant, here's your package. Lionel, stop this business. I'm in trouble. Tell this man who I really am. Oh, sure. He's Mr. G. Wellington Stuyvesant, the financial typhoon. Oh, no! <laughs> well, here's your bag, Mr. Stuyvesant, and machine. Lionel, will you stop the clowning and get that infernal machine out of here? Oh, ho! An infernal machine, eh? Going up the airport. No, 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 officer. It's not what you think. Oh, thank heavens I got here in the nick of time. Now, what is this machine? You, 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 you saboteur, you? Officer, I, I, I can't tell you what that machine is. You'd, you'd think I was silly. Oh, so you won't talk, eh? Well, we make you talk. Walk this way, you lord down sneaking spy. <laughs> Now, listen, you. I've had enough of this stalling. <laughs> I'm giving you plenty of time to talk. <laughs> now, I don't like to get rough, but you're forcing me into it. <laughs> Will you stop snapping me suspenders? <laughs> Help it, they fascinate me. <laughs> Gee, pre-war elastic. Stop that, will you? Look here, you. Don't evade the issue. 
I want a confession. Yes, trying to tell us that this here machine is for an innocent little thing like milking a cow. Officer, look, I've told you a thousand times that's all it is. You see, these little nozzles fit on the cow. Don't <laughs> tell me what they fit on. It's either a time bomb or a thing that makes poison gas. Then again, it could be a booby trap. Why don't you ask me? Is this his or is this hand for me a booby? <laughs> No use, Sergeant Barnett. Start working on the other one for a while. Okay. Hey, you. Who? Me? Yeah, you. Start talking. What'll I talk about? Come on now. Stop acting dumb. Who's acting? Now, wait a minute. This has gone far enough. You can't hold us here like this. I've got to get on that plane. Now, where's my bag? Yeah, we're not taking any chances on it exploding. It's soaking in that water tank over there. Soaking in the tank? Oh, you can't do this to me. I'll take it to the chief. I'll take it to the mayor. You better take it to the tailor. Your dress suit's in it. <laughs> Look, fellas, there's nothing in that bag but my clothes. Come on, I'll show you. Wait a minute. Don't go near that tank. Look, there's bubbles coming out of that bag. Bubbles? <laughs> Duck, everybody. It's going to blow up. Oh, nothing's going to blow up. That's only my Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> I've had enough of this. Perry, take their prints and book them. You first, Goldilocks. Now, wait a minute. Now, you just, here, just put... press your fingers oh. on this ink pad. Come on, press uh, them down there. Yeah, uh, uh, that's it. Uh, hey, Sarge, look. This guy ain't got no fingerprints. Now, shall we try it with my gloves off? <laughs> Look, I've got my license right here in my back pocket. Look out, Sergeant. Oh, I'm reaching for a gun, huh? Don't be silly. I wasn't reaching for a oh, gun. you'd rather use a knife here. Cold steel don't make no knife. I haven't got a gun. I haven't got a knife. Look at me. Do you think I'm the criminal type? Look at me. Yeah, look at him. Just gaze upon the gentle features of that innocuous physiognomy. That harmless innocent... a most dangerous type, a baby-faced killer. A baby-faced killer? Oh, look, I can't stand this anymore. I just can't stand this. I don't keep my license in a booby trap. I'm not a cold-blooded Alka-Seltzer. I'm not a milk-faced baby machine. I'm Danny Day. I mean Danny Day. <laughs> oh, so you're back to that Danny K routine again. Why don't you be Bob Hope for a while? Okay. This is Bob. Can't get out of the police station. They think I'm a saboteur. How am I going to get to Washington? Hope speaking. <laughs> what do you know, Sarge? <laughs> oh, we've both been acting like a couple of imbeciles. It's Bob Hope. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hope, I'd recognize your voice any place. <laughs> Always clowning. <laughs> yeah, always clowning. Well, I guess we'll be running along now. And thanks for the memories. <laughs> Coming, Mr. Colonna. Coming, Gate. Let's ambulate. <laughs> hey, uh, what's going on here? Yeah, huh? Quiet, Niles. Uh, well, I was told to rush down here and identify you. Oh, what's shh, the, uh, quiet, uh, Niles. It's hmm? all fine. Just fine. They know me now. Sure, everybody knows Mr. Bob Hope. Yeah, Mr. Bob. <laughs> are you kidding? He's Danny Kay. Oh, oh, so it's Danny Kay again, is it? Yeah, and who are you? One of the Kay gang? Sure, we work together all the time. Aha, uh -huh, now start talking and talk fast. Where have you been? The radio station. Oh, shockwave into the enemy, eh? No, I was just talking about 33 brews. Oh, there are 33 of you. No, no. 32? No, no, it was 33, I tell you. 33. Yes, 33 brews all blended into one great beer. He's talking in code, Cleary. You better tell us the truth. Oh, but I always tell the truth about Pabst Blue Ribbon. I tell you, it's full flavor blended. Are you decoding this, Cleary? Yes, but it still comes out beer. <laughs> 
that's what I'm trying to tell you. Order it with confidence, serve it with pride, for no matter where you go, there is no finer beer, no finer blend than Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst, 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 Stand Pabst. up, sir. This guy's going to explode. Yeah, let's, take the <laughs> let's take the bags out of the tank and put him in it. Oh, this is too much. I can't stand this, I tell you. Look, this is Ken Niles, and that's Lionel Stander, and I'm Danny Kay. Ah, oh, a likely story. I'm Danny Kay, I tell you. What can I do? How can I prove it to you, colors? Mm, don't... I've got it. Ah, he's crashing at last. <laughs> You're taking that down, Sarge? Every word of it. All right, keep talking. He's with me. He's with me. Oh, Sam, there's no mistake in that. You're Danny Kay, all right, but I'm still not letting you go. But, officer, look, I have to catch that plane for Washington. Oh, you'll make it all right, and we'll give you a police escort, too, if you do one little thing for me. What's that? Can you sing your sweet old Irish tune, me fine brother of a boy? Well, me fine broth of a policeman, that I can do and do. Well, anyway, <laughs> here's the most beautiful Irish folk song I know. It's called The Story of Molly Malone. In Dublin's fair city, the girls are so pretty. It was there that I first met sweet Molly Malone. She drove her wheelbarrow through streets wide and narrow, crying cockles and mussels, alive, alive, oh. She was a fishmonger, and faith is no wonder. Her mother and father were fishmongers too. They drove their wheelbarrow through streets wide and narrow, crying cockles and mussels, alive, alive, She died of a fever. And no one could save her. And that's all I know of sweet Molly Malone. Now her ghost drives her barrow through streets wide and narrow. Crying cockles and mussels alive, alive, oh, 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 alive, alive, o
Washington, gate number three, please. Well, here I go. I've got my own ticket this time. Hey, Danny, Danny, look, I got the machine back for you. Oh, go away, Lionel, and take that infernal machine with you. Infernal machine? Just a minute there, bud. Oh, no! Good night. Don't forget, neighbors, next Saturday, another great Danny Kaye show with Eve Arden, Lionel Stander, Harry James and his music makers, and Danny Kaye. This program was directed by Dick Black, was brought to you by the Taft Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Peoria, Illinois. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Denny Kay got in the last word, sometimes a tortured word, but one at the end of an impressive string of vocalizing. And it turned out he was a pretty fair singer, too. That was the Denny Kay Show from January 27, 1945, with Eve Arden, who sounded a lot like Eve Arden in our Miss Brooks, and perhaps most of the things she did, too. And she would be, within a couple of years, starting her long radio and TV run as Connie Brooks. Also on hand... Prominent bandleader Harry James rounding out the parade in the Danny Kay Show. And speaking of parades, we're going to have a cavalcade next. The Cavalcade of America here on Skywave Audio Theater. The Cavalcade of America had a long radio run from 1935 to 1949, celebrating various prominent figures in American history. The series creator and sponsor, DuPont, wanted to create a positive image to counter its association with weapons of war. So, early on, at least, in the series, the profiles from American history couldn't have battle scenes or gunshots. That was verboten by DuPont in Cavalcade of America. Later on, though, that uh, proscription was loosened up, as we'll hear shortly. This comes from January 22, 1945. It's the Cavalcade of America, with a story called Penny Fancy. Presenting Claire Trevor in Penny Fancy with Walter Houston as Cavalcade's commentator on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Good evening, friends. This is Walter Houston. This next Friday, our nation celebrates National Public Health Nursing Day, honoring some of the gallant and hard-working sisterhood of American nurses. And tonight on Cavalcade, we anticipate this national observance with a tense and exciting play called Penny Fancy, written by Hugh Chain. The heroine is Elizabeth Phillips, an American public health nurse who helped lick an enemy of the British people far more deadly and dangerous than Hitler's Nazi bombs. 
And to star in our play tonight, it is our special pleasure to welcome an actress who, in addition to being one of our most talented picture people, has in her trophy case an award for being one of radio's outstanding performers. DuPont presents Claire Trevor as Nurse Elizabeth Phillips in Penny Fancy on the Cavalcade of America. It is 1941, the year the Nazis tried to blast England off the face of the earth. In London, a group of 65 American nurses, including nine public health nurses, have arrived to help the overworked English doctors who live in dread of a disaster more terrible than the deadly bombs, a dread which haunts them even as they go about their work in the overcrowded wards and in the operating rooms. The Jerry's will be bombing soon, Dr. Larkin. Yes, but we have to finish this operation, Miss Phillips. Tenaculum. Yes, sir. Mock my face, please, Miss Cree. Yes, doctor. They don't leave us alone for 24 hours. I know. Not time enough to bury the dead, let alone care for the wounded. The patient's lost a lot of blood. We'll have to finish quickly. Forceps. Forceps, doctor. I'll say this. You American nurses have real stamina. You've been here since morning. You've been here longer than that, doctor. Get under the table. Both of you. Are you all right, Miss Phillips? All, all right, sir. Stay where you are. Stay down. That one hit the power plant, doctor. Yes. Can you get the emergency lights on? Hurry, Miss Cree. This man's hemorrhaging. I'll get them on, sir. There. Sponges, Miss Phillips. Yes, sir. Doctor, sometimes I wonder how you keep going. You mean the bombings. Oh, we'll survive them all right. But Lord help us if we have an epidemic. Epidemic, doctor? Look at our hospitals, crammed to the roofs now. Yes, and water mains bombed and sewers. Yes, England could be wiped out by a plague. Dr. Larkin. Yes, Miss Ellis. Could you spare Miss Phillips now? Why, I suppose so. We've finished with this case. Dr. Perry is here. He's asked to see her. Dr. Perry up from Bristol? I'll come right now, Miss Ellis. Cree, you carry on. Call Malloy if you need her. Yes, Miss Phillips. Come along. Dr. Perry's just outside my office. But uh, don't let uh, Perry steal my nurses. Who is Dr. Perry, Miss Ellis? He's a chief medical officer of Bristol. Bristol's been having a time of it. Worse than London. I know. He's in here. Dr. Perry, this is Miss Phillips. How do you do, Dr. Perry? Miss Phillips, I came up from Bristol on a very important matter. We have an extremely serious situation there. Yes, we heard the bombings have been very heavy in Bristol. Uh, worse than bombings, young lady, far worse. And we need nurses. Worse than bombings? Typhoid fever, Miss Phillips. Typhoid? I see. I don't have to tell you what that means. We had our first case not ten days ago. Today in Ham Green Hospital, there are 220 cases. More coming in every day. So far, it's only in Bristol. But that's an epidemic. It is, and it's spreading. No let up yet. And every doctor and nurse in Bristol is already working 24 hours a day. So that's where you come in, Miss Phillips. You want me to come to Bristol, doctor? You and the other American public health nurses... Sir Wilson thought you would be willing, although I know it isn't what you came to England to do. We came to help, Dr. Parry, wherever we're needed most. I hoped you'd say that, Miss Phillips. The Lord knows Bristol is where you're needed most today. too good, Sister Phillips. Oh, that's why you have to eat, Tommy. 
to keep your strength up. Now, just this last spoonful of porridge. Am I going to die, sister? Oh, of course not. But you won't be playing cricket again unless you eat. Cricket? That's my game. Well, <clears throat> the porridge, Tommy. All right, sister. Good boy. There you are. Now, just rest and you'll get well. You have to go, sister. You're not the only one with typhoid fever around here, Tommy. Now you go to sleep. All right, Sister Phillips. Oh, Miss Cree. Yes, Miss Phillips. How's Tommy? Worse, if anything. Where are the rest of our girls? They're specialing those five new cases, Miss Phillips. All typhoid? Oh, yes. I don't think Dr. Davies is the kind of man who makes mistakes. No, he isn't. Is Dr. Parry in the hospital? I saw him making the rounds in the next ward. He'll be here soon. I'm going to talk to him, Cree. To Dr. Perry? I certainly am. Here we are in the middle of a raging epidemic, and the thing we know best how to do, we're not doing. Yes, but I don't think he'll give us the authority. Well, I can ask. Night report, please, Miss Martin. Yes, Dr. Perry. Oh, Dr. Perry, there are five new cases this morning. Yes, I know, Miss Phillips. I just looked at them. Your nurses are doing a good job. Oh, as good as we're able, just nursing. Doctor, what's been done about checking the epidemic? Have you found the source of it? No. No, we haven't. Well, then how on earth do you expect to stop it? This isn't enough. Hospitalization isn't enough. It's spreading, Doctor. My dear young lady, don't you think I know? Don't you think I've been screaming to the ministry in London for help, for technicians? There isn't a technician available in England. Not one trained person who isn't already working night and day. We have the training, Dr. Parry. With nurses? In America, public health nurses are trained in epidemiology. We know how to trace the sources of typhoid. And you want to tackle this? You think you can track it down? I'm sure we can, Doctor. We'll need a laboratory, Dr. Perry. And the two technicians working with Dr. Davies, Miss Caswell and Miss Small. Well, it is an emergency. Oh, of course it is. The way the epidemic's spreading, in a few days there'll be no stopping it. Very well. I'll let you try. Oh, thank you. I have to let you try. And Miss Phillips, I hope you'll work fast. Is Caswell sure she'll have that test run before Dr. Parry gets here? She's finishing now, Miss Phillips. Maggie Malloy is with her. And where are the other nurses? Cameron brought in the milk samples you wanted. The rest will be over from the hospital this afternoon. We'll need all of them if there's Bristol water. It doesn't test positive. Do you think I was sound about the water? Where we should get the sample, I mean. Well, water is the best-known source of typhoid. Mm -hmm. Good morning, Miss Phillips. Miss Cree. Hello, Dr. Parry. I know it's only been a day, but I hope it's good news. We're hopeful, Dr. Parry. Caswell will be finished in a minute with the water test. Naturally, we tested the drinking water, but you're right. It might have become infected further from the source. Yes, since we know most of the cases are from poor sections, which have been bombed frequently. Miss Phillips. Oh, hello, Doctor. Yes, Caswell. You finished the test? Yes, Miss Phillips. It's negative. You're absolutely sure? Absolutely. I think we can assume the Bristol water supply isn't the typhoid source. Well, don't be discouraged, Miss Phillips. In a way, that's good news. Oh, I'm not discouraged, Dr. Parry. Only I... I was pretty sure. It may be a food infection from a human carrier. Yes, it might even be the milk supply. No, it isn't milk either, Miss Phillips. We tested the samples Cameron brought in. Are Cameron and Malloy both out there now? Yes, they are. Well, then we'll begin our last test. Interviewing the families of the people who have typhoid... What do you think you'll find there, Miss Phillips? We'll find out if the source of the typhoid is food. 
It would have to be a raw food because cooking kills the germ. And the same raw food eaten by nearly 300 Bristol families shouldn't be hard to find. But those 300 families are scattered all over Bristol, Miss Phillips. I know. We'll learn a lot about Bristol before we're through because we're going to visit all 300 of them. So you see, Mrs. Hale, that's why it's so important that you help us. They're nervous as I can. They're intimating, Miss Cameron, that my Alfie got took with something to eat in this house. I'll have you know... Mrs. Hale, I was just noticing this throw you've got over the back of your couch. Did you make it? Well, yes. Well, it's the most unusual stitch I've ever seen. And the pattern is so lovely. Well, I could show you how it's done in two minutes. Oh, I wish you would. It's easy to see you keep a beautiful house. Alfie must be very proud of his mother. He's a good boy. But I've been so worried since he got this typhoid. Yes, I know. And we're here to do what we can to keep more people like your son from coming down with it. If you'll help us. Well, I don't know how I can help. If you just remember what he had to eat. Of Cornish pastry it was. He had a bit of cake for tea when he came home from school. But don't you see how important it is, Mr. O'Brien, that you tell me just... In part, is it? Sure, my good wife's dying in the hospital and you ask me a lot of silly questions. It's to save others, Mr. O'Brien. Oh, that's it. Sure, sure, I can remember. Kippers we had on the day you mentioned with a bit of a sweet I brought home from the bakery. Think, dear. Think. Oh, I'd do anything to help my sis. I would miscree anything. To remember back to what we had to eat. Now, just look on this list I have. See if that doesn't make you remember something. Oh, yes, something we had about that time. Cockles. We had cockles. Cree, it's here. It's somewhere in these reports, and we can't find it. The girls haven't made any mistakes. Perhaps that shellfish, even though Caswell tested it. No, I've looked through these lists until I'm dizzy, Cree. It's all too general. Meat, cakes, pastry, bread. Every bakery shop in Bristol makes its own pastry, and yet we've had typhoid cases from all over the city. Some ingredient they all bought from the same place. That won't work. Mm -mm. If it had been cooked, the typhoid germ would have been killed. Certainly does seem hopeless. Dr. Parry will be here in a moment, Cree. What can I tell him? And you've done all you can, Miss Phillips. We're the ones who must have missed something, not you. Cake, bread, meat pie, nothing raw. Um, Just have to tell Dr. Perry we failed. But we can't stop his epidemic. Good evening, Miss Phillips. Oh, come in, Dr. Perry. Well, it's not good news. You didn't find the common denominator? No. We've been going over the list for hours. But there isn't a single raw food that enough people ate to give us grounds for suspicion. I'm... I'm sorry, Dr. Perry. You've nothing to be sorry about. You've done as well as anyone could. I don't see how we could have missed anything, Dr. Perry. Every item of food has been traced right back to its source. And there must be an answer. Let's look at that map again. Yes, here, sir. Cases from every part of Bristol. 
If it were milk or water, broken main pipe, there'd be even more. But with cases scattered throughout the city, yet not concentrated anywhere, must be some food product. If this were home in the States, we'd, we'd know. What do you mean? Well, it would be a human carrier. Someone handling food where it was manufactured in large quantities. Would we manufacture food? Yes, but anything raw that could carry a typhoid germ is made by the store which sells it. And at home, a factory would make it and ship it to small stores wholesale. That's the American method. The American method? Yes. At home, nothing would get to the public unless our whole public health system broke down. We have one Bristol company that's very proud of its American methods. Miss Phillips, you mean a a big factory that sells to retail stores? Yes, the Evan Company Limited. Dr. Perry, what... What does that company make? Why, it's a mass production bakery. That's it. What have you found? The only common denominator in our reports was bakery products, cakes, pies. But we were told everywhere we went that each bakery store made its own products. That's what fooled us. So you have found something. Well, give us 12 hours, Dr. Perry. Cree, we've got to find out exactly. And the only way to do that is to interview the patients. listening to Claire Trevor as Elizabeth Phillips in Penny Fancy on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Tonight, Claire Trevor is starred in the dramatic story of one of England's most desperate moments and the part played in it by a group of American nurses. Our play tells of the time when England, fighting for her very life, was threatened by a new enemy more terrible than any across the channel, typhoid fever. As our story continues, nurse Elizabeth Phillips and the other American nurses are interviewing patients trying to find the source of the typhoid epidemic. Try and think, Mrs. Fry. Ten days before you were taken sick. That's a long time back to remember, Sister Phillips. I know, but please try. Please, uh, what did you have for dinner, for breakfast, and lunch? It's very important that you remember everything. The fever, Mum. Uh, to remember... Will you remember? It was the 26th. The 26th. That should be easy enough. The 26th was my Freddy's birthday. Oh. For breakfast, we had the usual. A, a cup of tea and toast. For lunch, a, a bit of fresh fish. Caught by Mr. Thomas down the street. For tea, a, a bit of cold mutton. And for a sweet, Mrs. Fry. My Freddy brought home a pair of penny fancies from the bakery shop across the way. So you see, there was nothing unusual in what I ate. Station chips, that's what it was. Fish and chips and nothing more. Since we've been bombed up, Mum's not been doing the cooking at once, she did. And that's all, Gwen? No, it was not. I was so hungry on my way to work, I did stop in at Jack's Bakery for a bit of cake. What kind of cake, Gwen? Let me see. Oh, yes, and good it was, too. A penny fancy. Give me a 
threepence for being a good boy, Mom. So I bought me a penny fancy for a treat. After supper, we had these penny fancies. Why, that night for tea, we had a penny fancy. It was a penny fancy. Penny fancy. Penny fancy. Oh, good evening, ladies. Good evening. Is this Jack's bakery shop? Indeed it is, ma'am. What'll it be now? Blackberry tart, nice and fresh. We'll look at what you have. Are you the proprietor, sir? I'm Mr. Jack. Mr. Jack, excuse me for seeming to pry, but do you bake your own goods here? Most of them. And no one can say we use anything but the best, even these war times. Do you sell penny fancies? Penny fancies, is it? Indeed I sell them. And how many will you have? Uh, which are they in the case, please? Uh, these here, nice and fresh. Why, they're sort of cream puffs. Cream. No, you don't be finding real cream in Bristol these days, I'm afraid, Mum. That's a substitute due to the war. Mr. Jack, do you make these? Uh, not these, Mum. They're well bought at a penny, so I get my supply, as most bakers in Bristol do, from the Evan Baking Limited. That's the name. That's the name Dr. Parry mentioned. I'll take a penny fancy right now, Mr. Jack. <laughs> But, Dr. Perry, I, I'm, I'm sure the Evan Baking Company has no health violations. Uh, we're not blaming the company, Mr. Aiken. But the microscope showed that the oil cream in your penny fancies was infected with typhoid bacillus. And that means there must be a human carrier in the plant. If we're extremely careful... Oh, we're sure you are. Still, typhoid can get by the best technicians. Uh, we only want to make a few tests, Miss Aiken. Blood tests? Of the girls who fill the penny fancies. You haven't made any shipments today, have you? No, not to one, Doctor, after your order came down. We sent inspectors to get every bit of stock back from the retail store. How many girls did you say are working at the filling table? Five. All steady workers. Hand careful. Uh, those at that table. Oh, well, let's stop here where we can watch them. They look very clean. We're sure of that, Dr. Perry. Is uh, Miss Cree ready with the venipunctures? Yes, she's all set up in the outer office. Will you ask them to report to her, Mr. Aikens? Yes. Uh, do you want them in any special order? No, it doesn't really matter. Send that young blonde girl in first. Now that's uh, Eleanor Barnes. All right. Then in the order they are around the table. The tall girl on this end will be last. Very well. Uh, she's our newest girl. Only been here about three weeks. Name is um, Margaret Wicks. Your arm, please, Miss Wicks. What's this all about? That's what I'd like to know. Miss Wicks, we're sorry to have to take a little of your blood. Mr. Aikens told me something like that, and I'll have none of it. We're trying to help the people of Bristol. What do you mean? Well, someone here must be a carrier of typhoid germs. Perhaps it's you, Miss Wicks. Me? I ain't no such thing. Well, the only way to be sure is by making these blood tests. It'll hurt very little, Miss Wicks. The other girls have had theirs taken. All right. But I... Oh, that hurts, it does. It'll start hurting shortly. There. Now hold this piece of cotton over the needle while I pull it out. What do you think us working girls are? Miss Wicks is the last one, Miss Phillips, and I've arranged for the other samples to be tested. Fine, and thank you, Miss Wicks. You've helped us a great deal. Now we'll really know. Now we'll be sure. Seven White Lady Road is the next house. It's next to the corner, Miss Phillips. Dr. Parry, do you think that girl stayed away from work on purpose to avoid us? 
She was so difficult when Cree took her blood yesterday. Well, she's probably frightened, but we don't see she cooperates. I'm sure she will when we explain what it means to other people her being a typhoid carrier. No new cases reported today, and with Margaret Wicks under control, why... Well, yes, here we are, number 27. Now we'll see. Mm. She's living with the Sanders family. Wasn't that the name? Yes, here's the bell. Well, I hope the girl's here. Yes? Are you Mrs. Saunders? I am. What do you want? Well, I'm Dr. Perry, medical officer of Bristol. Is there a girl named Margaret Wicks living with you? Oh, it's about the fever. Yes, it is. She didn't go to work today. Could we speak to her? Well, she ain't here. What? She's gone, left this morning. Where is she gone? We have to know, Mrs. Saunders. It's very important. Oh, but I thought that's why you were there. It's quite a time I had with the poor girl. She took deathly sick last night. I called the ambulance, shipped her off to Am Green Hospital. Well, what was the matter with her? Didn't you know? The doctor who was here said typhoid. Typhoid? Oh, but carriers don't get typhoid, Dr. Parry. You know they don't. Not so far as medical experience goes. Oh, then we're way off the track again. Someone else is infecting those cakes, and we still have to find out who. Took blood tests of all the girls, Miss Phillips. Then maybe it isn't the cakes at all. No, wait. Uh, we know it's the cakes. It's barely possible this is a rare case, an exception. We're going to visit Margaret Wicks at Ham Green and find out. Doctor, am I going to die? No, of course not, young lady. Now, just rest quietly and answer some of our questions. You know I never meant to do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. You see, Margaret, we think you've been carrying this typhoid germ around for a long time, and you didn't know. You couldn't know. So you accidentally put the germs in the penny fancy. But then why wasn't I sick, too, for a long time? Well, that's what we're trying to find out, Margaret. Margaret, do you suppose you could remember what you ate over the bank holiday? Everything you ate? Oh, it's not easy, miss. I didn't work at all for three days, so I ate here and there with friends or had tea in a little shop across the way. Most of the time, I just fixed myself a bit at Mrs. Saunders. Did you eat any penny fancies? Oh, yes, miss. Took four home with me for Mrs. Saunders, and then Sunday night I saw she hadn't touched them, so I ate them all. Couldn't let them waste, though they were a bit stale. Dr. Perry. Yes, that would explain it. That oil cream is such an ideal incubation material. By the time Margaret ate those penny fancies, she must have gotten a lethal dose of typhoid germ. Enough to infect her, even though she is a carrier. I am going to die. No, you're not. Being a carrier, you have a strong natural immunity that I'm sure will save you. And don't you see, Margaret, by answering our questions and by cooperating with us, you've saved hundreds of people. Maybe you've saved England. I did, miss. Well, you, Margaret, and these American nurses, Miss Phillips and the rest. You're from America, miss. Whatever you're doing, why over here in Bristol? We're nurses, Margaret. It's our job to use our training wherever it's needed most. You did more than your job, Miss Phillips. Oh, no, Doctor. When the results of hard work are smiling, healthy faces, every bit of it's worthwhile. Thanks to you, Claire, Trevor, and to all other members of tonight's DuPont Cavalcade. When I read about the launching of a ship called the USS Hydrogen, I thought it was a pretty odd name for a ship. But I find the United States Maritime Commission 
is building a whole little fleet of vessels with chemical names, the argon, the carbon, the radium, and a lot of others. Let me tell you a bit more about the hydrogen. She's made of concrete, the first concrete reefer ship of her type ever built in America. She's a floating refrigerator, a big one. She manufactures 500 gallons of ice cream and 20 tons of ice a day. Her nickname is the Ice Cream Ship. The ice cream ship is out in the South Pacific now, working for the Army. I don't have to tell you why soldiers and sailors like ice cream. They like it for the same reason you do, because it tastes good, and it's good for you. It's because all of us know thousands of tons of dairy products are going to the men on the fighting fronts that we take it good-naturedly when we can't buy a double-dip cone or more than a pint of ice cream. They need tons of ice in the South Pacific, too. I'm going to ask Gain Whitman to tell you more about it. Refrigeration is very important in war, especially in the tropics. All our warships have refrigeration systems from submarines to battle wagons for comfort, to protect foods, and to condition explosives. Our 50 new baby flat tops all carry refrigerating machines to cool meat, dairy products, vegetables, fruit, and to manufacture ice in 25-pound blocks. Their machines use Freon 12 refrigerant the safe DuPont refrigerant used probably in your own refrigerator. At the present time, Kinetic Chemicals Incorporated, owned jointly by General Motors and DuPont, has developed a new refrigerant in the series, Freon 22, which is the ideal refrigerant for very low temperatures. With Freon 22 after the war, using smaller and less costly compressors, manufacturers will be able to produce entirely different kinds of low-temperature refrigerating systems. You'll be able to obtain temperatures as low as 100 below zero for quick freezing and industrial uses. And in the future, kinetic chemicals will bring you other Freon refrigerants. The aim is to provide a whole range of them so you can have a refrigerant for every job, for every purpose. Freon refrigerants are examples of DuPont better things for better living through chemistry. Tonight's play, Penny Fancy, has told one story of what the brains and initiative of American nurses have done overseas. There are many other stories we could have told. Thousands of American women have already taken their place beside these women of the Harvard Hospital Unit. As Army and Navy nurses. But right now, there's a desperate need for still more of this self-sacrificing work on behalf of American men-at-arms. We must be able to tell countless more stories of the skill and heroism of America's sisterhood of nurses. Yet even now, hospital units are leaving to go overseas without nurses to go with them. If you are a registered nurse, you are urgently needed by men with battle wounds. Get in touch with your Red Cross, won't you, or send a telegram to the Surgeon General of the Army in Washington, D.C. And please do it now. Whether the world is fighting a war or whether it is at peace, there is always one mighty struggle going on, the struggle of science against nature, a, medis a medicine against death. In a sense, it is a race, a race for time, a race for some human being's life. Next week, our cavalcade play is the story of one round in this never-ending struggle, the story of doctors Banting and Best and their victory over diabetes through the use of insulin. Be with us next week when Vincent Price and Richard Wharf will co-star in a race for Lenny. Thank you and good evening. Claire Trevor, star of tonight's cavalcade, may currently be seen in RKO's Murder, My Sweet. 
The music was composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. This is Gain Whitman sending you best wishes from Cavalcade sponsor, E.I. DuPont Dinamores and Company of Wilmington, Delaware. This is the National Broadcasting Company. One of the many dramatizations of American history brought to its listeners in the 1930s and 40s. That was Penny Fancy, a well-wrought dramatization of a little-remembered aspect of World War II, the threat of a typhoid epidemic at a time when bombs were getting most of the headlines. The story was Penny Fancy, and it came to us from January 22, 1945, from the Cavalcade of America. Rocky Jordan is next here on Skywave Audio Theater. World War II made a lot of Americans more aware of North Africa, Casablanca put the spotlight on Morocco, and a few years after that film, and after the war, radio's Rocky Jordan did the same thing for Cairo. Like Rick Blaine, a.k.a. Humphrey Bogart, Rocky was an American expat, but so far as we know, without the torment of a lost love, the likes of Ingrid Bergman. Paintings can torment some people. Last week, it was Lenore in Radio City Playhouse, and before that, it was Laura in Film and Radio. And you actually could go on for a while in that vein, as it turns out. But Rocky may have a more practical problem with Diana. We're about to find out. In the face of Diana, Jack Moyles is Rocky, Rocky Jordan, in a broadcast from January 22, 1950. Sunday is a big day on CBS. Still waiting in the wings to bring you a variety of entertainment are Rocky Jordan, Horace Height, Eve Arden, Joe Stafford, The Whistler, Red Skelton. Now Del Monte Foods bring you a world of adventure with Rocky Jordan. Chris! Chris! I'm right here, Rock. You want something? I sure do. How'd she get in there? She who? That lady Godiva with a short bob. What lady could dive her? Oh, as if you didn't know. Come on, take a look. But nobody could have gotten in here without the... Well, Rocky... All right, Chris, cut it out. Not bad, not bad at all. Okay, okay, how'd she get in? I don't know, Rock. Nobody could have gotten past me. Yeah, well, somebody did. And if it's not a gag, there was a reason for it. Either way, I don't like it. Now, get her out of here. Okay, okay, you're the boss. But you may be breaking up the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Yes, Del Monte, the best-liked brand of canned fruits and vegetables in the whole wide world, takes you now to the Cafe Tambourine for another adventure with Rocky Jordan. The Cafe Tambourine in Cairo, gateway to the ancient east, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. Tonight's Rocky Jordan story... The Face of Diana. Well, that's the way it started. Innocent. Nothing to worry about. Just a gag, maybe. Only before it was over, I found out the joke was on me. And I wasn't laughing. 
It began when I walked into my office at the tambourine one afternoon to find her staring at me from the opposite wall. Eyes a little too blue, lips a little too red. Chris didn't know how she'd got in, and it was a sure thing I'd never seen her before. What's more, it was all right with me if I never saw her again. Only Chris had other ideas. Uh, Rocky, you really think we ought to get rid of her? Oh, be your age, Chris. You've seen paintings before. Ah, but never one like this. How do you suppose it got in here? It didn't just walk in. Paintings don't have legs. No? <laughs> Look again. All right, all right. People don't just pin pictures on my wall unless there's an angle to it. And there's a title here. Diana at the Fountain. It may be the artist's signature. Uh... Hello, tambourine. Hello, Rocky. Well, how do you like it? How do I like what? Diana at the Fountain. The picture. What else? Look, who is this? Willie. Willie Rosen. You know, the painter down at the Musky Bazaar. So you dumped that painting in my office. That's right. Those meals you've been letting me have on the cuff, I, I just thought I'd give you Diana, sort of as a payment. Well, look, Willie, forget the bill if you want to, but come and get this thing, huh? Rocky, I haven't got time. I... Wait, Rocky. I can't talk. Willie. Willie, Willie. That's funny. Hung up on me. Well, who was it? Willie Rosen, the artist. Oh, he brought the picture in for you to keep. Not on your life. Getting rid of it as soon as we can. May I hope, then, that the picture is for sale, Mr. Jordan? I turned around. I don't know how he got there, but he was standing in the doorway. Well-dressed, Egyptian, with the fez of the upper class. But he wasn't looking at me. His eyes were glued on the painting. I nodded for Chris to leave. I asked, sir, if it could be possible that the painting is for sale. Oh, it's possible, yes. Then... Would you mind if I observed it more closely? On display to all customers. Uh, limited time only. Oh, yes, thank you. Well, it's not without merit. Excellent indeed. If you like that sort. May I inquire where you got it? Uh, it's an old family heirloom. Oh, yes, of course. Indeed. Well, good perspective, line, coloring. Sure, minor masterpiece. Yes, it might well be. Oh, you know how it is. All the best artists bring their stuff in here for me to handle. Mr. Jordan, I do not intend to pry into where you obtained the picture. But I am quite serious about buying it. What is your price? Price? Oh, it's way too high. Obviously, you do not recognize me. I am Kasha Bay, and I am well able to meet your figure, Mr. Jordan. Huh? Okay, I'll go along. You name it. 100 pounds cash. 500. Agreed, Mr. Jordan. The picture is mine. Kasha Bay pulled out a fat roll of bills, paid the 500 pounds, took the picture, and was gone. The price was too high, and it happened too fast, much too fast. I decided to check on Kasha Bay. He was in the phone book, all right. Address on the Nile front in the right part of town. That made me wonder about Willie Rosen again. So I headed for his stall in the Musky Bazaar. That's when I got another surprise. Willie and his paintings were all gone. But somebody else was there. Wax mustache and goatee... Spotless white suit, flop brim Panama hat. And he guessed what I was after. Ah, senor. Do I perceive that you also are looking for Willie Rosen? As a matter of fact, I am. You know where he's gone? I know only that the waiver across the way just told me that he gave up his stall this morning and his painting. I've gone in payment of debts. He uh, owed you money, of course. Oh, no, no. It's the other way around. Oh? But he did owe you money, huh? Me? Oh, no, no, no. Not at all. Purely a professional interest. I will explain that I am Carlo Veroni, senor, an art dealer. Oh, I see. And you're very anxious to buy one of Rosen's paintings. Oh. <laughs> Hell, I'm afraid not, senor. He's uh, an old friend of mine. I, uh, I have purchased one or two of his sketches at a small price, but only to encourage him, you understand. Oh, sure. 
Any idea where Willie lives, Senor Veroni? His studio is not far from here. As a matter of fact, I was uh, thinking of trying there. If you would like, Sure, Mr. Veroni. Let's go find him. Veroni took me half a block onto a street entrance and up three flights of shaky steps to Willie's studio. I watched Veroni's face as he knocked. There was no sound inside, so he knocked again. Right then, I got the feeling that it was the wrong place to be, but it was too late. Veroni's hand was on the knob, and the door swung open. Willie was there, all right, but there was no use telling him he'd just sold a picture. There was a chair tipped over in the center of the floor. Willie's feet dangled about two feet above it, and the rafter was sagging with his weight. It is from clear. Well, Jordan? It's like I said on the phone, Sam. Mr. Veroni and I walked in here and found him like that. Very well. There are certain necessary questions. But, uh, of course, Captain Savaya. Willie Rosen was a mutual friend. Uh, we came to inquire about him. It seems he'd been real busy disposing of everything, giving his paintings away to pay off debts. Mm. And even his studio is left bare. It's all quite clear. What does that mean? A man unable to face his own seeming failure, his last effort being to set his affairs in order before... before this. Suicide? You got to that awfully quick, Sam. And is it not obvious, Jordan? Sure. A little too obvious. Oh, come now. You are suggesting murder? And for what purpose? Robbery? Obviously the man had nothing. I talked to him on the phone this afternoon, Sam. He was in good spirits. Hardly sufficient evidence. People are given to heroics at such a time. Yeah, maybe they are. Just the same, you'd better check. Check what, Jordan? I don't know. As I thought. You have no facts. None at all. I... Just have a feeling, You just have a feeling. And may I point out you've had feelings before? And may I also point out that you've been wrong more times than you've been right? All right. Play it your way. It's your case. It is indeed. And this time, Jordan, shall we keep it that way? Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. Seems to me we're hearing a lot about budgets these days, and the big question, of course, is how to stay within one. So, I have a tip for you women who are planning ways and means to eat better for less money this year. Cook with the spicy, rich flavor of Del Monte tomato sauce. And that certainly is good advice, Larry. Del Monte tomato sauce really makes thrifty dishes something to talk about. Yes, it is important to cook with Del Monte tomato sauce. It gives you such a clear, zesty flavor, not too bland and not too spicy. A flavor that really builds up your hash, macaroni, or Spanish rice, for instance. And Del Monte tomato sauce is so dependable, too. Ask any good cook you know. Around our house, we've used it for years. Yes, after all, Del Monte is the original tomato sauce. No other brand has matched its marvelous flavor. And what it does for the flavor of the other foods is something wonderful, something you just have to taste to appreciate. You owe it to your own reputation as a good cook to see that you get the original tomato sauce. Del Monte. And now we take you back to Cairo and tonight's Rocky Jordan story, The Face of Diana. Well, I gave up arguing with Sam. 
He said Willie Rosen's death was suicide, but I wasn't convinced. And there was still Kasha Bay to think about. So I left Willie's studio and walked toward the Sharia El Dean to flag a taxi. But I didn't make it. A face at the street corner stopped me. I'd seen it before, and all at once I knew where. Pretty, eyes almost too blue, lips almost too red. She was the face on that picture Willie Rosen had brought to Micah Fay. Well, hello, Diana. Waiting for somebody? What? Why? Your name is Diana, isn't it? Why, no. Why do you ask? But you do know Willie Rosen. Oh, yes. Yes, I know Willie. And you? Uh, just a friend. Her name's Jordan, Cafe Tambory. Of course. Willie's told me how kind you've been. I'm Shirley Perron. I noticed the new suitcases, Shirley. Going somewhere? Oh, Willie has been keeping secrets from you, Mr. Jordan. He and I are going to Alexandria to be married. Married? It's kind of sudden, isn't it? Not at all. We've been planning it for a long time. Shirley, did you know Willie had sold his stall in the bazaar? He'd been taking his paintings around to pay off debts, but they're all gone? Of course. That's how he hopes to have enough money so that we can start a little business in Alexandria. Uh, look, I want you to answer one more question. It may be important. Of course, Mr. Jordan. What is it? When did you pose for that picture of Diana? Diana? What picture? The one Willie painted of you. Of me? But he hasn't painted any picture of me. I never posed for Willie in my life. Mr. Jordan, is there something wrong? I didn't have the heart to tell her, but I did get her into a cab and on her way home. What she told me, it started an idea bouncing around in the back of my head, like the little ball on a roulette wheel. And when the wheel stopped, it didn't say suicide. It was murder. Sam had already left Willie Rosen's, but ten minutes later, I caught him at headquarters just as his limousine pulled up. Jordan, you again? Yeah, that's right, Sam. I thought I'd made it clear. You wanted I... facts, I got them. Willie was planning to get married. That's the only reason he was clearing up his debts here. You are sure of this, Jordan? Positive. A man doesn't take his life just as he's about to get married, Sam. Is that all you came to tell me? No. Here are some more facts. Three, four, five. Jordan, what is this? Five hundred pounds cash. I got it this afternoon from a man who came to my cafe looking for one of Willie's paintings. He wanted that picture bad, Sam. I could have named any price. That is odd, very odd. Yeah, it's more than that. Who was this man? Well, now we're getting someplace. Come on, Sam, I'll take you to him. We got into Sam's limousine and started for the address on the Nile front. When Sam saw what kind of neighborhood it was, he began to get jittery. But he didn't ask any more questions. The house we were looking for turned out to be a junior-grade palace overlooking the river. Sam kept puzzled eyes on me as I worked the knocker. Yes? May I... May I help you? We'd like to see Kasha Bay. Kasha Bay? Jordan, what are you doing? Kasha Bay is here. Please to come in. The servants are out for the night, but I will be happy to show you the way. She wasn't Egyptian, but she was tall and beautiful with a certain dignity. Only I had a feeling she was acting the part. With Sam, it was different. He was wiping his forehead with a big handkerchief, and it was no act. Jordan, have you quite gone out of your mind? Sam, what's the matter? Who is it, Carter? These two gentlemen would like to see you, darling. So? Oh, Captain Sabaya. My most humble apologies, Commissioner Kashat Bay. Commissioner? Yes, Commissioner Jordan. I believe you have not met my wife of a few months. Countess, this is one of my most trusted captains of the police, Sabaya Bay. And, uh, Jordan, don't you remember? Uh, it is a pleasure, Captain. And Mr. Jordan. Now, if you two will step into my study, you will pardon us, my dear? 
Of course, darling. Now, Captain Sabaya, the purpose of your unappointed visit. Commissioner, I, I, I must confess oh, that I... Oh, I'll tell it, Sam. It's about your visit to my cafe tambourine this afternoon, Cachabé. Your cafe tambourine? Yeah, that's right. You bought a picture from me there by a painter named Willie Rosen. You wanted it real bad. Why? Captain Zabaya. Yes, Commissioner. Exactly how long have you been a member of the Cairo Police Force? Well, for almost ten years, Cachabé, I... It is unthinkable. But I do not understand. Then I will tell you. I have never seen this Mr. Jordan before. Neither have I been to his cafe, nor have I bought a picture from him. Today or any time. Jordan... Don't believe it, Sam. He was there. Enough. Captain... I shall expect a formal explanation of this affair, and in the proper manner. I, I shall submit a written report as soon as possible, Cachabé, with my apologies. Listen, Sam, why should I lie Jordan, to you? come out of this house now, immediately. Sam marched me out, his fares flying behind him. At the curb, he slammed the limousine door in my face and drove off. Now any hope of further help from Sam was gone. So I caught a cab back to the tambourine. By the time I got there, I was beginning to think I might be wrong. When I walked into my office, two things changed my mind. Both of them were big, native, and nasty. Ah, so you have come back. Howdy, Effendi. Yeah, sure, howdy. Look, this is a private office. But we come for the picture. Ah, I should have figured. Who sent you? Mama, tell him that we have come for the picture. Okay. As you say, Botar, we come for the picture. Ah, ah, ah. Easy, Naba. Do not strike him yet. Now the picture, Effendi. Okay. You're several hours too late. I think the time has come to that. Oh, no, no, Naba. Do not hit him yet. Mm. Now, search, Naba. Search. At once, Botar. I leave everything on turn. Hey, have you two ever thought of trying this routine in vaudeville? Picture uh, is not here. I do not find it. Satisfied now, Botar? Perhaps. But if the one who commands is not satisfied... We return. And when we return, we will... No, no, Naba, do not hit him yet. Come, we go now. Howdy, Effendi. Okay. Sure. Okay to you, too. I forgot to thank them for telling me I was right. The painting Willie had given me held all the answers. I was off to try and find them, first to the art gallery of Willie's friend, Carlo Veroni, on the Sharia Mildan. The hour was late, but the place was still open was full of the usual statues and cheap prints of famous pictures along the wall. Veroni was there and somebody else. The girl I'd met on the street that afternoon, Shirley Perron. Oh, Signor Jordan, it is good that you came. I, I've been consoling Miss Perron on Willie's death. Yeah, uh, sure. Hello, Shirley. Sorry I didn't tell you about Willie. I... It, it doesn't matter, Mr. Jordan. It's just that I can't understand. The police think Willie did it himself. No, no, that's impossible. We were so happy. Let's clear up something, Shirley. You told me Willie hoped to have enough money to start a business in Alexandria. He wasn't going to get it by selling his paintings. But he was. He had one painting he treasured, not his own, but an original Dega he'd had for a long time. Dega, Miss Perron. Surely not genuine. Yes, I'm certain. And he must have sold it because it, it wasn't in his room when they found him. There wasn't any money there, either. I... I hadn't thought about that. Suppose somebody was after the Dega. Where would Willie be able to hide it? A uh, moment, Signor George. There is a way used by many to hide a valuable painting. Let's hear it, Mr. Veroni. 
and our taste is only to apply a coating of shellac on the original and then paint another picture over it. Meaning maybe the painting Willie gave to me... Uh... Mm, my thoughts, you know. Yeah, there's only one way to find out. I'll see you later. Whether Baroni's hunch was right or not, it took me back to the house of Kasha Bay on the Nile. There was a light in one of the upper windows, but the lower floor was dark. I scouted the side windows till I found one that came open. I hit the jackpot. The room was used for storage, full of odds and ends of furniture. I lit a match and went to work. Finally, in a far corner covered by a tapestry, I found it. Diana at the fountain. That's as far as I got. You will observe the gun, Mr. Jordan. I always do. I had hoped you would not return. Now I ask why. Only to find something, Kashape. A valuable Dega painting. I fail to understand. Sure, but you didn't give me 500 pounds just for Diana at the fountain this afternoon. The Dega's underneath, right? Let's have a look. Do not touch the picture. You won't use that gun, Kashape. I regret that you make it necessary. I paid you for the picture, a fair price. Now you are broken into my house, and I have every right... Kasha, no! Countess! What are you doing? Do not come in here. There is no other way. No, no, give me the gun, Kasha. Give it to me. Very well. Oh, I uh, suppose I owe you some thanks, Countess. Yes. Yes, you do. However, I, I think it is best that you now know the truth. No, my dear, no. Yes. It is too late to do otherwise. Wait here, Mr. Jordan. She left the room, and in a moment she was back with a bottle that held some kind of liquid. She stepped to the painting, and with a cloth began carefully rubbing the liquid on the face. Slowly, the face of Diana faded, and in its place, another one came through. Only it wasn't anything painted by Dega. It was the face of the Countess, Kasha Bay's wife. So now you know, Mr. Jordan. I see. Countess, hmm? Only you're really just an artist model. You pose for that picture yourself. Yes. I... I lied to become Kasha Bey's wife. I bought up every picture ever painted of me, except this one. To keep your husband from finding out. I did not know that he had learned my secret long ago. So you were both after the painting. Only Kasha Bey got it first. You must understand, Mr. Jordan. I forgave my wife the moment I learned of her lie... But there were others who... Oh, sure. It wouldn't be good. The right people found out. I had presented her as one of station. My position, my future were in jeopardy. And it was even worth strong-arm methods, huh? Who paid Botar and his pal, anyhow? You or the Countess? No, no, no. They were in my employ. And did you have them kill Willie? I... Wait, Mr. Jordan. The Countess had nothing to do with that part. I killed Willie Rosa. No, it is not true. But it is. I went to his studio. You must believe me, Jordan. Uh, it's a good try, Kasha Bay, but it won't work. Willie was killed not more than ten minutes after I talked to him on the phone. You were in my office then, buying his picture, remember? But it could not have been my wife. It could not have been. It could have, but I don't think it was. Yeah, the answer this time's in another painting. Another painting, Mr. Jordan? A Dega. An original Dega. All of a sudden, I think I know exactly where to find it. Senor Jordan, you're back so soon. Yeah, I'm back, Veroni. And the Dega you have found? I sure have. Excellent. And, and where, Mr. Jordan? Well, you figure it out. Willie Rosen, painter, wants to sell a valuable Dega. Now, where would he take it? Where else but to an art dealer, to someone he'd done business with before. An old friend. 
An old friend? You, Veroni. Jordan, this is preposterous. Only Willie wanted money for that painting. A lot of money. More than you were willing to pay. Oh, you insinuate that You I... killed him, Veroni. Should have been obvious from the beginning. Only it all got mixed up with another painting that didn't have anything to do with it. Lies, a pack of lies. If I kill for the digger, what is it now? Some nice prints you got on your walls, Veroni. Those? <laughs> They're only cheap copies. All right. Then I'll buy them. Jordan, what are you doing with it? With this jackknife? It's not for you, Veroni. For these pictures. Like this. You're mad. You've lost your senses. Not that one, huh? Let's try this next one. Not that one either. And maybe this oh, no, one. No, no, no. senor. Veroni broke, no. and I knew I had it. He grabbed a phony Van Gogh off the wall and swung. The frame glanced off my head, and I bopped him with a fake Picasso. He shoved a statue of Venus at me. The knife clattered out of my hand. He made a dive, but I grabbed a modernistic print of a hatching ostrich egg, and I came down. Veroni's head poked through where the egg used to be. That's when he decided to call it a day. In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. As most of us know, raiding the icebox is a favorite pastime with the American male. And it's even more of a treat when there's plenty of that zesty Del Monte catsup handy to go with those late evening snacks. Mm-mm, there's nothing like a cold beef sandwich topped off with that wonderful, rich, spiced tomato flavor of Del Monte catsup. Well, as a matter of fact, Larry, Del Monte catsup is wonderful on any food that calls for catsup. As my family's favorite cook, I know from experience how Del Monte catsup adds so much zip and zest to other foods. And one of the big reasons Del Monte catsup has such rich, lively flavor is pineapple vinegar. Yes, Del Monte is the only catsup made with pineapple vinegar, a superlatively fine vinegar that coaxes out all that tempting deep-down tomato flavor. It gives Del Monte catsup an extra lift, a special zip and zest that means real enjoyment. When beans, hash, or chops need extra man appeal, just see if the delicious spiced tomato flavor of Del Monte catsup doesn't do the trick. For downright eating enjoyment, friends, be sure your next bottle of catsup is Del Monte. Back now to Rocky Jordan for the conclusion of tonight's story. Well, my game of pictures with Veroni had stirred up a big noise. The police came and hauled Veroni and me both down to headquarters. Sam took over then, talked first with Veroni for a while. Next, he had me brought into his office, and we were alone. He gazed at me through his horn-rimmed glasses, but I wasn't sure what was going on behind them. Uh, Jordan? Yes, sir? Have I not read that the Indian people of your country had a charming custom to mark the end of hostilities... The offering of the, the peace pipe? Yeah, that's right. Maybe got one? No. All that I can offer is a cup of coffee. Will you join me? <laughs> Don't mind if I do, Sam. Thanks. Ah, very good. Now, just for the record, there are perhaps a few things you would um, like to tell me. Oh, well, now he listens. I deserve that, Jordan. Uh, forget it. That's not bad coffee, Sam. Well, it seems there was an Egyptian official. I, uh, can't remember his name. 
Can't remember. Uh, oh, yes, of course, naturally. Yes. He married a woman who posed as a countess. But then he got wind of a painting that proved she was a phony. Only trouble was, this got mixed up with another painting that wasn't faked. An original Dagger. The one Veroni killed Willie Rosen to obtain. That's it. The motive was simple robbery from the beginning. Only a uh, certain official and his wife stumbled in on it. That, of course, made Veroni think he was very much in the clear. Mm, that, plus your suicide theory. Very well, Lord. Yes, very well. Actually, Veroni tripped himself. In trying to lead me off the track, he suggested the idea of one painting over the other. That did it. Mm. Jordan, you still do not recall the name of this, um, uh, official? Funny, it still escapes me. All I remember is that he loved his wife an awful lot. Enough to protect her by confessing to a murder he didn't commit. Love is a strange emotion, Jordan. Is it not? Well, that reminds me, Sam. I gave you 500 pounds belonging to Willie Rosen. There's a girl named Shirley Perron. Willie would want her to have it. And the Dega painting, too. Well, as you say, Jordan, you will find me quite amenable. After all, you have taken a most disagreeable task from my shoulders. Oh? What's that, Sam? The necessity of making a formal apology to... Uh, uh, isn't that odd? Huh. It seems that I, I, too, have forgotten his name. <laughs> well, good night, Jordan. For the finest in tomato flavor, enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte catsup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and tomato juice. And Del Monte whole peeled tomatoes. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Rocky Jordan, written by Larry Roman and Gomer Cool, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jane of Aloys, Sam Sabaya, and is produced and directed by Cliff Howell with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. Same time, same station, and the story is An Air of Death. Whenever you want a quick dessert or a wonderful salad, think of Del Monte peaches. Sliced or halves, they have the luscious tenderness, the natural sweetness you find only in tree-ripened fruit. Yes, for superb peaches, buy Del Monte, the best-liked peaches in the whole wide world. Larry Thor speaking. Rocky Jordan is presented over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A painting and a problem, all wrapped up in the face of Diana. That was Rocky Jordan from January 22nd, 1950. It certainly posed a problem for Willie Rosen, murder victim, 
and for Kasha Bay, who was too eager to get his hands on the canvas. Or was that really Kasha Bay? Such were the illusions in the world of intrigue in Cairo. And now it's time to reach back into the past for a crime classic here on Skywave Audio Theater. 1812, it was a formative year in American history, and on a more personal note, it was an important year in the lives of Russell and Sally Colville, citizens of rural Vermont, and for their young son, too. Important and more than a little weird, as it turns out, was their experience in that year of 1812. But their strange doings are documented and therefore are the stuff of one of radio's finest series. From January 27th, 1954, this is Crime Classics with the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That was Jacko. Jacko, the three-quarter Irish setter. A good dog, usually a well-behaved dog, friend to the children of Manchester Village, Vermont, an inquisitive dog. Whatever disturbs him isn't buried very deep. Listen to him digging. Smart dog. He's found what he was after. He's tugging at it. Gets it. Good dog. What have you got there, Jacko? A bone. Looks like a leg bone, doesn't it? A human leg bone. Tonight, my report to you on the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. A study in nip and tuck. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. They were fighting battles on Lake Champlain in 1812, but across the state, forests away and mountains apart, the village of Manchester sent peaceful fans of chimney smoke into the February air. It was ebb of winter and edge of spring. It was snow flurry and thaw and chill sunlight. Here, the Battenkill River flowed swift and dark down from the green mountains and crusted icily near its banks and past the village, then flowed swift and dark away. And where the snow had melted, the soil glistened and was rich and black. Farmhouses gleamed white. And where the furrow began, the shallow furrow that deepened and roughened and slowly rose up the mountainside and became the gorge that cut across the face of Mount Equinox. Where it gently began was the backyard of the house of Russell and Sally Colvin. And inside it... He's sleeping. Asleep? Why? Why asleep? Shh. What did you put him to sleep for? Please. There's moonlight on the snow, and there's moonlight on the mountain, and I promised my son he'd see. Why do you do that? Why do you fill his mind with lies and fancies? There's little men on the mountain tonight, and I told my son he'd see them. 
Lewis! Don't wake him, Russell. Don't wake him. Stop hanging in on my arm, woman. Russell! Stop hanging on my arm! Crazy! Crazy, man! <laughs> wake! Wake, son. I'll bundle you and it's up the mountain we'll go tonight with you riding my shoulders. And little men we'll find... Them at their bowls and singing and dancing. And we'll join them. Come with me, son. Up the path the moonlight makes on the mountain snow. Up the path the moonlight makes. As any mother knows, this is an upsetting experience. And as Sally Colvin knew, this was not the first experience of its kind. Sometimes her husband would hoist her son on his back and walk away from the house and not come back for days at a time. And when they did, they would smile at each other, secret smiles, and say nothing of where they had been. And there were secret words between them that Sally could not understand, and signs and small patterns of dance, and then great bursts of laughter. And this time... The time when Russell took his son up the path the moonlight made, and they returned two days later. Where have you been? In heaven's name, where have you been? Sleeping. Now you'll sleep the day away and the night, son, and dream of the fancies we've seen, little men. Sleep. Sleep. Tell me, tell me what. No. Oh, sister, oh, come in. What can I do for you in the morning? Hold me. Hold me. Oh, oh sister. Sister to me, what troubles you? <laughs> Him again? Your husband? Yes, oh, yes. And what? What he's doing to my son. Soon, soon. What? My son will become as mad as my husband. They think of creatures in the mist in the gorge. And starbursts and moon. Brother. Brother Stephen Bourne. What do you want me to do? I don't know. I don't know. He's a stronger man than I. There's not much I can do. But you and our brother Jesse Bourne, together you could do it. Don't speak to me of Jesse, him that I hate. But me? What of me? Speak no more of it. Save me. Save me, Stephen Bourne. That's what I ask of you. Sister. Save me. How? Very well, you know how. You and Jesse. You know it and you have said it. Come with me to our brother's forge and make peace and save me, your sister. Your 
father stands here before you and wishes to friend with you because... Jesse! Out of my way, there's work to be done. I'm no blacksmith, Jesse, and I've not got the sinews of you, but listen to your sister and what her trouble is or I'll try you. Will you now? Will you? Me, you can split your head to your heart in a stroke. Try me, will you? Then do it! Stop it! Stop it! Listen to me. I'm being killed, and my death is the madness around me. What are you saying? Of a husband. Let her say it. And what he does to my child. I've heard strangenesses in the village of your husband, sister. And when I've heard them, I've smiled to myself in remembering. This is the man you needed to marry, sister. Would die without, sister. And now he's a daft and a loon. Now he's... Hear her, hear her out. Say on, sister. He takes Lewis with him on walkings. For days. And they return. And there are secrets and madnesses. And loneliness for you. I care nothing of it. I care only for my son. Jesse. Jesse. Take his hand, Jesse Bourne, and be brothers again. For there is a bond now. The need to help me. Yes. And... Now listen to me. There where the ravine starts, by the field where it is rocky, I will send my husband there. A plotter, our sister. I will send my husband there tomorrow in the morning. Will you be there? Will the both of you be there? We'll be there. Now, hear to me, son, the way I do it. Come a goblin, come a teeny, come an elfin, come a greeny, come about, come about, come about all, and you shall... Russell. I'll finish it for you later, son. Russell. Russell. There you are. Your son mute and agape at you again. What do you want? The new morning and the new season of springs coming in with it. And so? And so there's work. You need not tell me of it. There's no work I do not do on this farm. I need no telling of it. In the upper field and where the rocks are easy to pull from the ground now that the thaw has softened it. I know of it. You need not remind me. Tonight the night frost may harden the ground again. I know it. I know it. Then go. I'll be back, son. Think hard of the verse I taught you. The way he went, did Russell Colvin, on this new morning toward the upper field. He'd not gone 20 yards when he stopped. Gold. Sparkle of sun on Vermont granite. Small pool of sparkle. Gold. And he picked it up and put it in his pocket. Then on again, the long way around, through the grove of naked spruce, to give throat to the new season. Oh! And on and on, to the brook now, and stop beside it. And kneel beside it and listen. Yes. Yes. Then through a thicket and into the upper field and the surprise in store for him. Oh, Russell. Hello, Jesse Boyne. Stephen. Oh, brother-in-law. What do you hear? To help you, Russell. To do what? 
to help you clear the rocks now that the ground is soft with thaw. And how do you know I'm here to do that? How indeed. I need not your help. I'm hearing you do, brother-in-law. I'm hearing that way, too. We're in hearing you don't do well by our sister, Russell. That's what we hear most of. And who's saying that? Our sister, your wife's saying it, Russell. More wife than sister, so it's not of your business. So it's off the land with you, the two of you. Oh, now, indeed. What you have to in that branch for, Stephen? I'm aiming to brain you with it. You are aiming the same, Jesse? Going to help. Then let's get to it. We'll see. Let's get to it indeed. Stephen Bourne used the branch as a club, and with excellent teamwork, he and his brother Jesse won the fight. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Tomorrow evening, CBS Radio invites you again to mystery and intrigue, enhanced by the presence of Miss Marlena Dietrich. This Thursday, Miss Dietrich's adventure leads her to a little town in southern France, where stories of buried treasure have been bruited loudly enough to gather rapscallions of reprehensible inclination from all corners of Europe. Time for Love is heard tomorrow evening on most of these same stations. Now, once again, Thomas Highland in the second act of Crime Classics. This report to you on the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. A study in nip and tuck. It was a good spring. April of 1812 was the gentlest in the memory of those who lived on the soft shoulder of Mount Equinox in Vermont. There were rumors of marchings and torch and war outside, but no one paid much attention. They were more important things, church, crops, and children, living to be done in the green mountains, the crackling air to be breathed, roam away through the soft fall of twilight and press a cheek against the warmth of an animal. Wondrous sunsets and tomorrow a wondrous dawn. Good place and good time, this valley. And one morning, as a matter of fact, on the morning after the Bourne brothers had done an errand for their sister. Come in. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Wyman. And to you, Mrs. Colvin. A sweet morning. It is. And what may I do for you? It's Wednesday. And so it is. So I've come again so your mister can drive me to the village again. He to shop for you and me for mine. He's not here. Oh, no. In the field, then? Not in the field. Oh, of course he is not, for I saw your son Lewis at play just outside the door, and he would be in the fields with his daddy dear, were his daddy dear in the field. You'll be late to market, Mrs. Wyman. Where's the dear man, your husband, Mrs. Colvin? Gone. Where gone? To the mountain. 
Oh. I think. And when will he return? I don't know. Oh, such a dear man. And the dear fancies he sees and tells you of. Ah, oh, what a fortunate woman you are, Mrs. Colvin. I've cleaning to do, Mrs. Wyman. And busy you are, I know, Mrs. Colvin, preparing supper for you and your beautiful child. But it's a month since the village has seen your husband last. And for the last week, it's been raining. And if the dear Mr. Colvin is in the mountains, as you say, what then, Mrs. Colvin? What then? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe what? Maybe he has gone to war. It's a year now, Mrs. Colvin. Have you heard from the dear man? Ah, it's a cruel war. I came to wish the all of you you, Mrs. Colvin, and you, Stephen Bourne, and Jesse Bourne, a happy new year to you. May 1817 be a blessing to all of you. And to you, Mrs. Wyman. Happy new year, Mrs. Wyman. Happy new year. And a pity Mr. Colvin's not here. I suppose he'll never return now, will he? Now stop your crying, Sally. Boys are boys. Only 14. My son, Lewis. I run off to join the militia. What's that? Most what all boys doing now. Maybe I've failed. What are you saying, sister? Maybe the whole thing was done wrong. What wrong? Seven years since he's had no father. Maybe his father should have been close to him. The loneliness again, sister. Or my son. Hey, what's the outcry? See what, Stephen? Oh, Stephen Bourne. What is it, Sheriff Skinner? See there, a fire to Dr. Glazier's barn. Fetch a bucket in quick. Yes. Jesse, there's a fire to Dr. Glazier's barn. You surely know the barn, Jesse. Fire! And in 1819, fires were not very easy to control. It was a matter of having enough men and enough buckets to reach from the fire to the stream. And Dr. Glazier's barn was not notably close to the stream. Nor were there enough men nor buckets. 
So... The fire had its own way. It burned the barn to the ground. And later, when the ashes had cooled and while Sheriff Skinner was consoling Dr. Glazier on his loss, the sheriff's dog... Ah, what you digging they are, Jacko? Find something, Jacko? Bring it here, Jacko. Ah, let's see what you got there. A bone. Funny-looking bone, big bone. What kind of bone would you say this was, Dr. Glazier? Leg bone. Human. Don't say. Not positive. Would be, though. Let's take a look, Jacko, where you found this bone. Hand me that stick of wood, will you, Doctor, so I can make this hole a little bigger. Where I used to store my potatoes to keep them from freezing. Uh Uh, Uh-huh. A button now. And look here, a knife. Funny-looking knife. Let me see it. I know the knife. Now, whose? Russell Colvin's knife. Russell Colvin now. He's not been around. Six years, seven. It's his knife, all right. And that's a button off his coat, too. And this is a human leg bone, you're saying, Doctor? I'm not saying it's not a human leg bone. Let's get along, Jacko. Come on, come on, boy. A few words about Sheriff Silas Skinner. A good man had been sheriff of the county for nearly 20 years, and there wasn't a man who could say he hadn't got a fair shake from old Silas, or woman either. An honest man with no bias nor prejudice. A direct man. Where's your husband, Sally? Why, I don't know. A man of few words. You kill him? No. Who killed him, Sally? My brother Jesse killed him, Sheriff. A cautious man. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. But I'm arresting you till I find out which. A man of his word. Jesse? Yes, Sheriff? You kill your brother-in-law, Russell Colvin? No, Sheriff, I did not. Who did? My brother Stephen did. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. But I'm arresting you till I find out which. Sheriff Silas Skinner sees it through. Stephen? Yes, Sheriff? I locked up your sister and I locked up your brother. And I'm putting you behind bars, too. On what charge, Sheriff? For murdering. Murdering who? Russell Colvin. I didn't murder him, Sheriff. Jesse said you did. Jesse's lying. I've known Jesse for long. He don't lie. He's starting to now when he says I murdered. You didn't murder him by yourself. That's what you're saying, isn't it, Steve? I'm saying that right enough. Your sister have anything to do with the murdering? Not that I know of. I'm going to tell you something, boy. What? I'm going to tell you something, son. What? You say to me what happened, it'll be easier for you. What do you mean? A little scale, that's all. No hanging. There's a handshake that goes with it? There is indeed. Here's my hand, Sheriff. And mine. Now, how was it done, son? How was it done, boy? Russell Colvin was on his rocky upper field. And that's where you done it, son? And my brother got on one side of him and... I got to the other. And that's how you done it, boy? I hit him with a tree branch. And Jesse with his fist? That's right. That's right. 
And that's the way you killed him? Yes, sir. Then you took him to another farm? Doc Glaciers. And to that barn? Doc Glaciers. And buried him? Yes, sir. We'll write this out, son, and you'll sign it, won't you, boy? Just a little jail? Boy, son. Just a little jail? I shook your hand. Then I'll sign it. Good boy. Taken on so, no. Stephen Bourne. Your brother Jesse's not acting up the way you are. They found us guilty. Well, you confess. They're gonna hang us. You said just a little jail. You said no hanging. I did what I could. You said no hanging. Now you listen to me. You killed your brother-in-law and you confessed to it and you had a trial by jury and they found you guilty. The judge said hanging. Now that's the laws applied to you and your brother. Oh, don't carry on. Let's do a thing, Sheriff. What thing? Put an advertisement in the newspapers. An advertisement? For what? For Russell Colvin. Put a description in and say life depends on him turning up. You crazy? You killed him. You confessed you killed him. Who knows of Russell Colvin? Whether killed, he stayed killed. He and his moonlight little people. Do it. Now, don't order me, son. Please. Huh? Please do it. Well, all right, son. I have a copy here of the Rutland Herald, a newspaper of the time which was circulated throughout this area of Vermont. I would like to read to you a classified ad which appeared in the issue of November 26, 1819. Printers of newspapers throughout the United States are desired to publish that Stephen Bourne of Manchester in Vermont is sentenced to be executed for the murder of Russell Colvin, who has been absent about seven years. Any person who can give information of said Colvin may save the life of the innocent by making immediate communication. Colvin is about five feet, five inches, light complexion, light colored hair, blue eyes, and about 40 years of age. Why? That sounds like our hand, Russell. Except it doesn't say about a boy being with him. Hmm. Ah, I'll see if it is. Russell! Russell, now! What was you doing, Russell? Talking to my boy, Lewis. Your son, ain't he? My son. They're looking for a man named Russell in Manchester. Oh, going to be a hanging unless they find a man named Russell. Russell Colvin. You once said you was from Manchester. I am. They looking for you? I'm Russell Colvin. My duty to see you get back to Manchester, Russell. Yes, it is. And so, two days before the scheduled hanging, Russell Colvin again appeared in Manchester. And the Bourne boys were not hanged. They were set free. What about the bone? Well, it was never proven to be a human bone. And the knife and button, Russell's, how had they gotten there? Russell always smiled when he was asked that. And what did his wife say to all this? You can come home if you want. I don't want you no more. I hear our son's with you. Yes, ma'am, he is. 
How did he find you a hundred miles away? Oh, the little people told him where I was. Him that lives on the path the moonlight makes. They told him. According to the report I have right here. In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. The Bourne Brothers, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Virginia Gregg was heard as Sally, Lamont Johnson as Russell, William Conrad as Stephen, and Jack Crucian as Jesse. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, Joseph Kearns, and Herb Butterfield. Bob Lamont speaking. Here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, London, England, in the year 1722, we will concern ourselves with the strange behavior of an escape artist. He robbed women and escaped from their men. It's listed in my files as The Incredible History of John Shepard. Thank you. Good night. Stay with CBS Radio right now, and you're guaranteed a ringside seat for the Archie Moore-Joey Maxim championship fight in Miami. Yes, right after station identification, most of these same stations will bring you Joey Maxim's bid to KO Archie Moore and regain the world's light heavyweight crown. The exclusive radio broadcast in just a moment. Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, is heard Friday nights on the CBS Radio Network. foray into madness, or strangeness anyway, in rural Vermont, as it was in that formative year of 1812. That was Crime Classics from January 27, 1954, with the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. Actually, everybody came out better than they usually do in Crime Classics. It was a poetic production, thanks to writers Irving Fine and David Friedkin, and of course, producer Elliot Lewis. As for the boxer Archie Moore, you heard mention of, well, he went on to become the longest reigning world light heavyweight champion of all time, reigning from 1952 to 1962, a long time to be a champion boxer. We're going to hear from another celebrated writer, a ghost story writer by the name of Charles Dickens, next here on Skywave Audio Theater. In 1842, 
Charles Dickens became famous for his ghost story, a story of redemption called A Christmas Carol, which we heard a couple of weeks ago here on Skywave Audio Theater from the Campbell Playhouse. In 1866, he wrote another ghost story, and not his only other ghost story either, perhaps inspired by a train wreck that took place in Sussex in 1861. And his story, called The Signal Man, was produced several times for radio, right on up until Nightfall did it in 1982, and done a time or two for film also. This is the Columbia Workshop with one of the earlier adaptations of The Signal Man. It comes to us from January 23, 1937. The Columbia Workshop, under the direction of Irving Reese. Full of shillings come Saturday night. Do you work for the railway too? That I do, sir. Wiggins is the name. I'm a track walker. Ought to be plenty of exercise in that. Yes, sir. Even nights I walk east. Or nights I walk west. I'm just a going on duty. And if you want to come along with me, sir, I'll show you the way down into the cut so you can speak to the signal man. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Oh, don't mention it, sir. I've no trouble. Right this way, sir. There's some steps cut out of the rock. Mind you don't slip now. I'll be careful. You go ahead. I'll follow. Right, oh. You'll be writing this up as a story for the pipers, I'll wager. Who told you I was a writer? Nobody. But who else would be fool enough to go about risking his neck climbing down into such a place as the cut? Here's a longish step, then. I'll hold onto that branch. Right, oh. Yeah. Hey. You seem to know this path very well. Why wouldn't I? I up to make it. Ten years back. There's a loose stone. It rocks a bit. Uh, me and Perky, you was me mate on the job at the time, figured it would save us a deal of walking. It's a rather stiff climb down. Uh, that it is. But it's the quickest way out of the cut. This year climbs here. You've got to walk down the cut a mile below the town before you can get onto the road. Then you've got the mile back to walk. Uh, how about the opposite direction? To the west? Yes. Oh, you couldn't go that way, no how, sir. The tracks going west run right into the tunnel. Into the tunnel. Hang on, sir. Here comes the express. And she keeps the machine against the wind with a close eye. 
like sitting on the tail of an earthquake. <laughs> Does that signal man have to listen to that sort of uproar all day? About eight times a day, sir. Well, no wonder he didn't answer when I called to him. If he's been on the job a few years, he must be as deaf as a post. Oh, no, sir. His hearing's all right. He has to pass an examination every so many months to all his folks. Now, you watch it close from here on. It's wet from the water, seeping out from between the rocks. There isn't much light, is there? No, sir. It's all as dark down here at the bottom. Except for an hour or two in the middle of summer when the sun is direct overhead. The rest of the year, you've got to keep the lamps lit on account of the walls being so steep and high. One might just as well live in a cave or a mine. Here we are. Mind that puddle. Uh, well, I'll leave you here, sir. Just walk along the track till you comes to the signal man's house. Well, you needn't worry. None about the engines running you down, and there won't be another one along for a bit. Oh, thank you, Mr. Uh... Wiggins is the name, sir. Well, we're two G's in it. Because you wish to mention it in your story. <laughs> I'll remember. Uh, what's the signal man's name? Braxton, sir. What sort of chap is he? No man on the line knows his work with her. Does he mind having visitors? I shouldn't think so. He's always willing to pass the time of day, so to speak, when I come by. He talks dedicated, like he'd been to school. Or done a lot of reading in heavy books without pictures in them. Is he old or young? Oh, it's hard to say about that, sir. Unless he was middling young and middling old, if you know what I mean. Yes, turning gray about the edges. He ain't got no wrinkles. What did you mean when I spoke of being taken for a ghost and you said it was the signal man who was the ghost? Oh, I was just a talking, sir. You look terrible pale and death-like. Well, that's from living down here with no sunlight. And it being so damp and all. Just being in the dark and twilight all the time do that to any man. Might his face white. Like... Like the wax they make altar candles from. I see. Well, look here, mister. Uh, here. Here you are, Mr. Wiggins. Huh? Oh. This floor, sir. A couple of glasses of ale at the pub when you get back. Oh, thank you kindly. I'd be killed, sir. Uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, and thanks for your kindness, Wiggins. Oh, don't mention it, sir. Nothing at all. Good day to you. Good day. Oh, how do you do? Mr. Braxton, my name is Darkin. I'm a journalist. Darkin? I'm doing some articles on all sorts of odd things. You think I'm odd? Well, well, no, no, that isn't the idea at all. But your work is different and not many people know about it. I think it would make interesting reading. Perhaps. If you just answer a few questions. Why not? Why do you... Stare at me like that. Was I staring? Yes. You look at me as though you had a dread of me. I was doubtful whether I'd seen you before. Where would that be? There. By that red lamp at the mouth of the tunnel. Well, what would I be doing there? I'd give a great deal to know. I was never there. I'll swear to that. This is the first time I've ever been down here. And I wouldn't be here now if a chap named Wiggins hadn't shown me the way. Don't you believe me? Yes. Yes, I believe you. But this time it was you who called out, Hello, below there. What do you mean, this time? 
Just that. This time. Why, yes, I cried out something to that effect. Not to that effect. Those were your very words. I know them well. Well, I don't remember, but if you say so, no doubt that was what I said. Why? Why? Yes, why did you use those words? Well, because I saw you below and I said, hello, below. No other reason? Dash it all, man. What other reason could I possibly have had? You had no feeling they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? Of course not. Very well. But you must never call out those precise words again, sir. Never again. I beg of you. I don't suppose I shall ever have any reason to. So you may set your mind at ease, Mr. Braxton. Thank you. Probably think I'm a bit touched in the head. No, no, of course not. Well, perhaps I am. It wouldn't be strange, would it, after all the lonely years I've spent at this solitary and dismal post? I suppose a man gets used to it. Used to it? Aye. It becomes part of you. I've been confined between these narrow walls for so long, I, I feel strange when I go up above and into the town. I, I feel insecure without them, open to attack and danger from all sides. I breathe easier when I can descend once again into this cavern. I can understand that. They say that criminals who have been surrounded by prison walls for a number of years are practically panic-stricken upon their release. Yes. Sorry, sir, I would imagine... My prison's in beautiful, and yet I have a strange affection for these dripping wet walls of jagged stone. I love the dim half-light. The eternal damp and the cold wind that comes out of the tunnel, and the rattle and roar and shriek of the passing train. I don't mind them. Did you ever read about St. George and the Dragon? Yes, of course. I sometimes think of myself as St. George... The mouth of the tunnel is the entrance to the dragon's cave. Every morning at eight, he rushes out for his breakfast. I can see his one gleaming white eye coming through the dark, growing larger and larger as he approaches. And like St. George, do you try to stop him? Oh, no. Although I could by hanging this red lantern on that post. He's afraid of red light. Terrified. If he sees a red lantern, he stops dead in his tracks. And the ground shakes with his trembling. What does your dragon eat, Blackstone? I don't know. His feeding ground is somewhere out through that cut in the level country. He goes rushing out, throwing fire and smoke from his nostrils and rattling his metal scales on the tracks. Two hours go by, and he, then he comes roaring back into his cave again. The same dragon? According to the timetable, it's number 48 that comes out and number 32 that goes back, but I, I know his voice. It's the very same dragon. Comes out and goes back four times every day. He went out just a bit ago. Yes. I saw and heard him as I was climbing down into the cut. He's coming back any moment now. Put your hand here on the track. Feel that vibration? Now listen. Hear him? One day his great weight will break through the crust of the earth and the whole world will fall into the hole. His breath is so hot, it withers the grass along his path. He screams. All the demons run back to Hades and go the real. The dragon's gone back to the 
Good Lord, man. You need to get away from here. Holiday anywhere. Your nerves are stretched to the snapping point. You'll have a breakdown. I can't go away. If I do, there'll be a death for someone. And I won't be there to stop it. First look here, old man. It's all very well to have a sense of duty. And probably there's a great responsibility on your shoulders doing this job. But after all, the man who took your place might be just as efficient. Efficient? Yes. But would he be able to see the ghost? The ghost who warns of danger. Would his eyes be able to pierce the dark and the smoke and read the warnings of the gray ghost who lives in the tunnel? What are you talking about, Braxton? Oh, you're shaking like a leaf. You're chilled through. And so am I. Let's go in your switch house and get out of this infernal wind. Uh, very well. Come. This way. a lot better. You've got a snug little place here, Braxton. Yes. I put a few more coals on the stove. Looks as though you've done some reading. Heavy reading at that. Economics, history. What is the time? A French grammar and dictionary. Do you speak the language? In a way, sir. I've, I've studied it myself. I pronounced the word as... I judge they'd be pronounced. That's very interesting. Are you a university man? Oh, no, sir. I've learned what little I know right here. Really? Is that for you? No, that's for the men at the other end of the tunnel. Here, take that chair so it's more comfortable. Oh, thanks. Just what are your duties, Braxton? They're very simple. I change the signal... Turn the lights and turn the handle on the switch now and then. No manual labor. Exactness and watchfulness are about all that is required of you. Yes, sir. There are many long hours when I have nothing to do. Uh, how do you pass the time? Through reading, studying, and thinking. It's a quiet life, sir. But I've got into the routine and it doesn't bother me anymore. It did at first. The first year I was down here, I used to climb up the rocks to the very top and sit in the sun when I had a free hour. I gave that up. Why? And I kept listening for the sound of the telegraph instrument or the ring of the little bell they used to call me. It was on my mind all the time, you see. It wasn't much of a relaxation, so I gave it up. I understand. A little while ago, Braxton, just before we came in here, you spoke of seeing a ghost. Yes, sir. I've seen it many times. And heard it, too. Has it spoken to you? Yes, sir. When? The first time was just about a year ago. Yes. Come to think of it, it was just a year ago this very night. What did it say? I, I was sitting here reading, and suddenly I heard a voice cry out, Hello, below there. Where did this voice come from? I wasn't sure, sir. What did you do? I started up and looked out of that door. And saw no one. Oh, I wish I had, sir. I wish I'd seen someone like you standing on the top of the cut as you did tonight. I suppose you thought I was ungracious when you first introduced yourself to me. I didn't mean to appear that way. It was because I was so startled that you'd used the very words the ghost used. 
What was it you saw that night? I saw someone standing near the red light to the entrance of the tunnel. Then the voice cried out again, and it seemed hoarse with shouting. Hello, below there! Look out! Well? Well, I caught up my lamp, turned it on red and ran toward the figure, calling, What's wrong? What's happened? Where? Did it answer? there outside the blackness of the tunnel. I ran right up to it, but as I stretched out my hand to pull it by the sleeve, it vanished. It was someone's idea of a lark. They ran into the tunnel. No, no. Because I ran into the tunnel, too, for a distance of 500 yards or more. And I stopped and I held my lamp high overhead. I saw nothing, save the numbers that tell the measured distance, the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I'd run in. But dash it all, Braxton, in this day and age. I know, I know. I didn't believe then, either. I did go back to the office and telegraph both ways down the line. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back directly, both ways. All's well. Surely that convinced you that the whole affair was a hoax, or else a figment of your own imagination? I can easily understand how it could have happened. That wind out there in this unnatural valley... Makes a wild harp out of the telegraph wires. And it could be mistaken for a human or inhuman cry of distress. Then the shadow... No, no, pardon me, sir. But that's not the end of the story. Oh? You see, six hours later, that same night, one of the most horrible accidents took place. Within ten hours, the dead and the dying were brought through the tunnel and passed over the spot where the ghost had stood. Yes, I remember that wreck. A frightful affair. Still, the appearance of your ghost on the same night may have had nothing to do with it. A remarkable coincidence. Coincidence? Yes. One that would make a very deep impression on you, or me, or any man. Such remarkable coincidences are continually taking place. True. But the same coincidence seldom occurs twice. Rarely three times. And never, I believe, four, or five, six, or seven. You mean that the same thing happened again? Again and again and again. I said that particular accident was a year ago tonight. Six or seven months passed, and then one morning, just as the day was breaking, I saw the ghost again. Where? In the very same place. By the entrance to the tunnel. Did it cry out again? Oh, it was silent. It was leaning against the shaft of light from the signal lamp. Both hands before its face. Like this. Go up to it? No, I... I came in here and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts and partly because the sight had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, the daylight was above me. The ghost was gone. What happened after that appearance? Another accident? Yes. That very day, the train came out of the tunnel. I noticed a flutter of white cloth. I saw it just in time to signal the engine driver with my flag. He put on his brakes... But the train drifted 150 yards or more down the cut. You ran after it? Yes, sir. As I ran, I could hear terrible screams and cries of anguish. Well? A young woman passing from car to car had stumbled and slipped down between. Her death was practically instantaneous. It was her companions who were screaming. We carried her in here. A second coincidence. There were others. I could name you half a dozen. But it's the past week that's on my mind... Every night the ghost has appeared, but nothing has happened. Every night? Yes, I... I thought you were... 
He tonight, when you called out. He always appears at the same place? Yes. At the danger light. What does he do? For the past seven nights, he's... He stood there with his left arm flung across his face, as though to shut out some horrible sight. The right arm, he waves as though to say, for the Lord's sake, clear the way. But he says nothing. Oh, if that were only the case. No. For many minutes together, he calls to me. Hello there. Look out. Look out. Look out for what? Oh, if I only knew, sir. If I could but learn what he's warning me against. What's the danger? Where's the danger? What can I do? Nothing, Braxton. Except wait for some further word from your strange guest. Don't you understand? There's danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity is going to happen. Why not do what you did the first time? Telegraph in both directions. But they believe that I was mad because I could give no sane reason for the alarm. They discharged me. What else could they do? Yes, I am mad. No. No, I don't think so. You're not well. You're sick in body and mind from being down here so long. And the responsibility of your post has got on your nerves. Oh, I wish I could believe that that is what's wrong. You've got to believe it, Braxton. I tell you what. I'll look up some doctor who specializes in nervous disorders. You must come with me to see him. Would this doctor be able to explain the ringing of the bell? The bell? What bell? That bell. The one over my desk. The one that the other operators on the line used to summon me. Your ghost rings that? Frequently. Tonight? Tonight. During the last few minutes? During the last few minutes. It hasn't rung, Braxton. You mean to say you haven't heard it? No. But it's ringing now. It's your imagination. The bell is not ringing. And probably it has never rung at any other time, except when some station wishes to communicate with you. <laughs> I tell you the bell... No, no, no. Not the bell. Not the calling. I hear nothing save the moan of the wind in the wild. He's standing out there by the danger light, calling to me. Hello, below there. Look out... Look out! Braxton, no one is out there. When he first appeared, why didn't he tell me where the accident was to happen if it must happen? Why didn't he say how it could be averted if it could have been averted? Braxton. And the second time when he hit his face, why didn't he say she's going to die? Let them keep her at home. Why? Stop it, Braxton. Stop it, I say. Uh, if he did that just to prove his warnings were true so that I believe him the third time and the fourth and the fifth, why doesn't he warn me plainly now? God help me. Why doesn't he go with someone with a power to act? And the power to understand. Braxton, get hold of yourself. I believe. I believe. What can I do? What can I do? Listen to me, Braxton. Listen to me if you value your sanity. If you go on like this, you'll end up in an asylum. You must put the whole affair out of your mind. How can I do that? By realizing that you're an intelligent, painstaking, and exact individual. You've allowed a series of events to upset your balance until you're on the brink of utter collapse. You've got to get a grip on yourself. You've got to. For your own sake. Not for the sake of your job. 
and the safety of those people whose lives depend on your performance of that job. I know. You think I haven't told myself that over and over again? But you've got to do something about it. Come. We'll walk down to the danger light and see what we can see. There's probably some very logical explanation for the appearance of your ghost. Some combination of light and shadow that creates an optical illusion. Come along, Braxton. I'll put an end to your ghost. If you only could. If you only could. Come along, Braxton. Come on. Yes. There's your voice, I'll wager. The wind moaning through those wires overhead. If you listen to that sound long enough, you might come to believe it to be a whole chorus of departed spirits. And there's your danger light, shining ruby and bright. Yes, I, I trimmed it just before you came. Do you see any sign of your ghostly visitor? No, he isn't there. See, without belief, he doesn't exist. I don't believe in him. There's no such thing as the supernatural. Therefore, he cannot appear to you. there to the side. But that's impossible, Braxton. You couldn't see anyone there. But I did. But you couldn't. It's too dark. The rays from the lantern don't fall in that direction. Nevertheless, I saw him plainly. He's where you always stand. He was here last night, as I told you. With his left arm flung across his face, as if to shut out some terrible sight, and waving the right arm frantically and, and calling, Below there... Look out! Look out! And you were standing where? On the tracks. Directly in front of the signal house. Very well, Braxton. I'm going to prove to you that you couldn't have seen him. I'm going to stand here on the spot you've designated. And I want you to walk down the track. Yes, sir. Stop when you come to the place where you were standing last night. And then turn around and see if you can see me. Very well, sir. I'm going to teach you to laugh at Ghost Braxton. This is the place, sir. Good. Now, turn around. Yes, sir. Now, can you see me? Here in the shadows? No, sir. I can't. Well, doesn't that prove to you that you couldn't have seen anyone standing here last night? Or any other night? Yes, sir. I guess it does. And if you couldn't see the person, you couldn't see what he was doing, you couldn't see him wave at you or throw one arm across his face. No, no! Braxton! Braxton! Look out! Below there! Look out! The light on the engine picked him up a quarter of a mile away, and I whistled. There was plenty of time for him to step off the track. Didn't he make any move at all? No, sir. He was staring up toward the danger light at the entrance to the tunnel. I don't think Braxton ever heard the whistle. I put on the air, and I tried to stop, but 
You can't do it in, in that distance. No, I know. It wasn't your fault, Grayson. No, there wasn't anything I could do. I'm thankful I haven't got that on my mind. It got me upset. Uh, you're not the only one. That journalist, uh, Darkin, I think his name is, is up in the hospital for observation. They had to strap him in the bed. I can understand the shock he must have had. My light picked him up just after I whistled. And he stood there, waving his arms at poor Braxton and yelling for him to get off the track. Didn't Braxton see him? He, he must have, sir. That's what I can't figure out. His back was turned my way, and he was staring right up the track toward the tunnel. And this other chap. Yes, sir. Just as the engine hit Braxton, this writer chap threw up his arm across his face as though he was trying to shut out the sight. But he kept waving the other arm frantic-like. Terrible accident. Yes, sir. One that I won't forget in a long while. The train drifted into the tunnel for a few hundred yards before it could stop. But I'll never forget that writer chap's face as they passed. It was white as death. Standing there by that danger light, he looked just like a ghost. But he was still calling, Below there, look out! Look out! Look out! Columbia Workshop has presented The Signal Man by Charles Dickens. Tune in next week at the same time for another workshop presentation. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Put that in the subcategory of transportation ghosts. For example, the Ghost of Flight 401, much more recently in that particular vein. That was the Columbia Workshop with their setting of The Signal Man from January 23rd, 1937. And our final stop for tonight, as the mysterious traveler might say. Next week, we'll have one of America's premier theater actors, Alfred Lunt, in a comedy from Theater Guild on the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland. We'll have some other things, too, other forays into the world of sound, and I hope you can join me then. Next week, for more from Skyway Audio Theater.